Oh, this is embarrassing. Doug's muted. Blooper reel. Uh, so here I am. I'm back from mute. Um, All right. So now I'm going to move on. Oh, gosh. I was scrolled on the wrong thing. Sorry. My bad. My bad. Okay. Okay, Grant, you're up. Oh, he's muted too. How embarrassing. I am such a newbie. Sorry. No worries. I remember my first beer too. Sorry. You can hear my cat in the background. This is awkward. Do you hear her? Do you hear Lindsay going crazy? Yep. This is great. Apparently she got into the chicken that was on the counter. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yep. That's great. That's a blooper reel. Gold open gold. Good evening. Before we start our podcast tonight, I have a short message I want to read from Chris Meddings regarding the recent book, Models for Ukraine, which was created and sold to raise funds for humanitarian relief for the victims of the recent conflict in Ukraine. Here is Chris's message. I want to thank everyone that has bought Models for Ukraine. The book is now sold out at Inside the Armor, but you can still buy copies at robymodelbau.nl in Europe from Guideline Publications, From Model Center, Starling Models, all in the UK, and from BNA Model World in Australia. In the next week or so, when all the donations are finalized, we will have raised over $22,000 U.S. for the Disasters Emergency Committee Ukraine Appeal. I want to again personally thank everyone involved in producing the book, buying the book, and promoting the book, including all of you in the posse. Thank you, Chris Meddings. Now, on to our episode. everyone and welcome to episode 46 of the Plastic Posse podcast. Tonight we're again a little short-handed seems to be the season, but I have with me uh, over in Colorado, John Bonani. How you doing, JB? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to talk models as always and it's a welcome break from the real life. Awesome. We also have here in Utah Doug Smith. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing very, very well. And like JB, I'm just grateful for the uh, distraction, getting away from everything else in life right now and talk some kids. Distraction. Doug got paid to go golfing the other day. It was a good distraction. (laughs) And we have a very special guest joining us again from California. Grant Mayberry's back with us. How you doing, Grant? Uh, good. Glad to be here. Just like the rest of you guys, I'm ready to talk some models after, you know, 60 hour weeks. It's nice to nice to relax a little bit. Awesome. Well, unfortunately, uh, Ivan seems to have suffered a technological issue that doesn't allow him to be with us tonight. And uh, TJ is a little under the weather, so uh, we'll miss those guys. But I think we've got a great episode in store for you. Well, let's start with kind of what everybody's been working on. So, um, Doug, I'm going to begin with you because I think I see a new toy there on your bench. Yes. So I got home from work today. And just before we started to record here, I opened up the box 
uh, boxes of my very first 3D printer. Went on your guys' recommendation with the Anycubic Mono 4K. They had a crazy sale last week. It was my birthday, and and I told my wife about the price, and she just said, send me the link, which shocked me because I didn't think there was this was in the cards for me. Uh, so apparently the whole family pitched in, and now I'm going to be set up to uh, start printing. Nice. Did you get a wash and cure station as I got, well? I got a wash and cure station, and that's about it. I have some resin on the way. I need to get some uh, IPA and FEP. I'm just going to throw around some... Uh, some acronyms here. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm ready for that. I've got a whole bunch of, I've got to clear some space on my bench. It'll be sitting near a window. So I'll have to do something about the UV on the window and maybe a little ventilation there too. But yeah, I got to clear some space because I've got like six open models on my bench right now. I'm just glad you're down with the sickness. It's great. <laughs> awesome reference, JB. I'm impressed. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm happy. I'm I'm really looking forward to this, and I'm curious to what I can find and print and have some have some fun with. I'm definitely going to be learning figures, how to paint them and how to make uh, make those work for me. I'll be maybe picking Grant's brain a bunch here for that. Always here to help, man. Yeah, you know if you want to look at figures too, Photos Mint on Patreon. Oh my gosh, so good. And he and he has his back catalog open too, which has a bunch of Star Wars figures, Lord of the Rings, Marvel characters, and most of them are bust form. But there's also full scale figures, and with the beauty of 3D printing, you can scale as needed. And your AnyCubic's going to put those out, and they're going to be smooth as silk. So get after it. How do you spell that so I find the right place? F O T I S M space M I N T, I believe. Photos Mint. And uh, I can I can shoot a link to you and then also post it in the show notes. They have if they have bus size Star Wars stuff, that's actually something I would love to do is a whole bunch of Star Wars busts. Their their Boba Fett is unbelievable. Absolutely great. I just sent one to Josh. I'd printed one out and sent it to him so he could paint it up. They're they're gorgeous. And and TJ's mentioned it before. When he designs his prints, they all come pre-supported, which is great. But then the way he pre-supports them and then TJ was talking about the design of the fabric and the texture on the print itself. It really hides the print lines. And there's not much with the Anycubic, but what Photos does even kind of it literally just erases them. The only post-processing that you have to do is, you know, sand maybe where the supports were on the bottom of the bust, but otherwise they're good to go and they're gorgeous. The Boba Fett I have, the, the helmet printed so smooth, maybe just one swipe with a sanding sponge and like wet sanding, but otherwise it's, it's, it's at the quality of resin casting. I mean, you can see that today where people are switching out from traditional resin casting to uh, 3D printing. Phase hanger is a good example right. with uh, aircraft stuff. I think FC models is another one that's gone yep. straight to 3D model or 3D printing also. Yeah. And and BJ DeBecker, I think he's, you know, mm-hmm. transferring a lot of his stuff. And did you see his latest work, Scott? That crane. Whew. It's yeah, it's unbelievable. And I the thing about his prints, and you guys are gonna think I'm a dork, but the way that he puts the supports on his files, I mean, it's a work of art. I'm always stunned when I look at his support work and you can just see his mastery of this process. I agree. And you know, he's also just a world-class CAD modeler. So sorry to go down the rabbit hole on 3D printing. Back to you, Doug. What's on my bench right now? Um, I'm still still trying to make a uh, group build for the M- M3, M4 happen, but uh, it's it's armor and they're not good kits. So so it's, it's not fun, but uh, I am still working on the Skyhawk for the Model Geeks build. And I've got a, I just for the kicks and giggles of it, I pulled out the Bandai Cosmo Zero from Space Battleship Yamato 2199. And I'm, I've got that in primer. 
it's just a quick slap it together and paint kind of build. It won't be, you know, too detailed, but it's fun. It's a great subject and a great kit too. All right. Well, JB, let's move it on over to you. I know you've been really, really busy, but let's talk about uh, what's been on your bench and what you've been up to. Yeah. Even despite being busy, I've still found a little bit of time to get to the bench. I'm actually going to take this Friday off and do a little bit more work, but I have a couple of projects that are at Primer. So I have four projects there, two Wargaming miniatures, 48 scale T3045 and a 35th scale Jagdpanther by Tacom. What's pretty cool is I, on the Jagdpanther, I'm actually using the 3D printed tracks I've done. So it'll be the first time that I've actually used something I've printed on a model and I'm pretty stoked about it. The tracks are, again, this is another page Patreon that I'm a subscriber of. He goes by the name Tank Brusher and his catalog is unbelievable. He has every major track from or every track from every major family of German armored vehicle from Panzer One all the way up. I think he even has E100. So I have his Panther tracks. What's nice is they come pre-supported and there's a bolt head on the one side. So you insert the wire from the inside and then the outside looks perfect. And what's cool is there's a simple function in Lychee and I'm sure Cheetah Box has it as well. You literally just click the mirror button and it flips the track around and it mirrors it so you can print your left and right-handed sides. So the bolts are on the outside of the track. You don't see any wire. And I put a run of 15 together. Literally, I cured the tracks and then broke them off. I try to do it the other way around where I break the track off and then cure it, but I found it much easier. And the supports are so light that you can simply click them off. And I, again, assembling a run of tracks in minutes because there's the holes, no drilling required. And I'm actually stealing some rod from uh, from my frule sets to to help out with that. So I need to get some more wire. Bottom line is they're gorgeous. And another thing I printed was actually I just got Dasverk's Panzer III, which is outstanding. And there is another guy on Cults, and he goes by Faustus, and he has a bunch of tracks as well. One of the tracks he has is the Panzer III four. Winterketten. And I scaled them up. Thank you to Jackson for that. I scaled them up, I think, to, I got the note right here, 218.75%. So if you want to go from 35th to 16th, that's the number you want to use, 218.75. And that was, a, again, easy to do in lychee, scaled it up. And I printed like a run of 10 just as a test. And then I it came with pins as well. Now on the pins, I actually only scaled them them up to 218 because I thought I wanted to leave a little bit of room and it turned out absolutely perfect. I printed this run out. They are beautifully, you know, they fit the sprockets perfectly from Dasberg. So if you think about it, if I print one set of Winterketten tracks, if I would have bought them from T-Rex, that's $200. So I've nearly paid for the printer. Now, granted, there's all these ancillary things. So yeah, it isn't a direct one-to-one correlation, but you take a significant dent out of your investment by just literally one set of tracks and think of all the 35th scale stuff piling up. So you can pay for these machines incredibly fast. And same with busts too. A bust like Boba Fett typically goes for 60, 70. And it's it's great to support artists out there who sell STL. So uh, bottom line is I'm, I'm hooked on 3D printing. I got a good system down and shout out to Jackson again for helping me out with a lot of things. And yeah, it's just great. I mean, it's it's been a lot of fun. And the printer was $205 last week. Yeah, it's a no brainer. While we're talking about 3D printing, that kind of seems to be the predominant theme. Matt McDougal today took Soraya Tech flexible resin and mixed it with Craftsman, any cubic Craftsman resin, and 3D printed a spring. And he w- he made a little video and put on Facebook of compressing the spring, which is super cool. He's going to use that on his uh, 
M3, M4 group build, that that crazy, uh, is it a T10, John, that mine mine vehicle? T10 mine vehicle, yeah, that's that's cool. I haven't yeah. seen that, but BJ DeBecker does that as well. He'll mix in a little bit of Soraya Tech Fast and something else and gets a little bit of elasticity there, which helps with some delicate parts that transfer back and forth, track springs. That's really cool. I'll have to check out Matt's video. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And then I have been actually playing with a couple programs, Mesh Mixer and Blender, where you can take different STL files. So if you've got any like the game body files where uh, you actually are printing out parts of a kit, you can actually take three or four STL files, combine them and and output a single STL file. So if your fuselage is broken into three sections, you can make one. And I've been playing around with with that, the combining and modeling part of it and having a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, another thing, I also scaled up some German like tool clasps and no-tech lights and fire extinguishers. They look gorgeous. So again, unlimited possibilities. And what's cool is the 116 scale Sherman coming out from Andy's Hobby headquarters. And I think there's a lot of potential there for 3D as well and value gear stowage. Yeah, well, hopefully with the uh, Easy 8 coming out, somebody's finally going to listen to Scott and make a 116 scale Willie's Jeep to go with it. No. I feel like the licensing alone will keep that kit above $200. Got to give Chrysler Corporation their piece of the action, right? Well, Grant, what have you been doing? What's uh, What's been on your bench this last little while? Well, I've been working the opposite. I'm still I'm still 3D printing, but I'm going smaller. Uh, I'm doing a lot of 28 millimeter stuff, a lot of uh, figures. I've been posting here and there, working on some dwarf, fantasy dwarf stuff. I'm trying to get a little bit away from the the Warhammer stuff a little bit, but I'm looking to bring color into things. Uh, I've been reading a lot about NMM. I'm not, I've tried it several times. Um, I'm not good at it. And I, I've actually seen it a couple of times in shows lately, and I'm not really kind of that impressed as a show for showing. It's great for pictures. It's great for books because you have that center focus when you're looking right at that NMM. You're looking at that, and that's non-metallic metal if people don't know what NMM is. If you're looking straight at it or taking a picture straight at it, it looks great, fantastic. But if you move to the side or look at the vig, spin the figure a little bit, you kind of lose it. You, well, you don't kind of lose. You do lose it. You, you lose the light. You lose the the brightness of the the tones and stuff like that. So I'm trying to figure out a way to you know still carry metallics and that tone in a, a 360 view instead of taking a a 3D object and making it one or 2D. I'm trying to take that 3D object and keep the silver, but using heavy washes, uh, but, you know, bringing it back up with dry brushes and stuff like that. And it, I, I'm really finding myself ever since the, you guys had that, uh, did the interview with, what's her name? I was it Lila. Lila. Yeah. I, I've, I've found myself in colors a lot more and it's, it's been, it's been really fun and I'm really, really enjoying it. You know, I do have a 3d printer myself. I use a Nova 3d, which is a four is a, is a four uh, printer. It's just great. I love it. I've had it for about a year and a half now and I've been using it nonstop pretty much the whole time I've used, I've made some stuff that I've shown it's done well, but I, I really think that like TJ was saying, or not TJ, I'm sorry, JB was saying, you know, it's, it's, it's coming to that where it's companies are actually shifting over to the 3d model because they can do it so much faster and they don't lose the, in resin, as most of us know that if you print something or you make something in resin, you start to lose the definition of that mold after a while. And you don't do that with 3d. 
you don't at all. Um, so they're, they're, you know, it's, it's a cost saver for the actual company in the, in the long run. You know, I, that's what I've been doing. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my calendar every day going, Oh my God, it's, it's the end, almost the mid May. And I'm looking at July going, uh Oh, and I've got to do something. You know, I'm still working on my Sherman for, uh, the group bill and it'll be there, but it's, you know, it's, it's had a change. I accidentally threw away the turret after I completely built it. I put it back in a box so I wouldn't damage it. So I put it back in the box and not paying attention. I put it on the side of my, where I put my trash and I threw it away. So I had to figure out another way around that where it's going to, it's going to be there. So we'll figure something. Speaking of that, I've been uh, actually working on my M3, M4 group build, my M10. That's just about ready for paint. And then I also finished the little Tacom 172nd scale T90MS. I know it's one of those uh, naughty Russian things, but I had started that before, uh, you know, what's going on in the world. Got primer on it. Really amazing kit. It's amazing what the de- the levels of detail in 172nd scale are for armor kits, you know. This this model has fuel lines for the external fuel tanks. And, you know, that's a detail that most 135th scale modern armor kits don't even have. Well, before we, we move on, John, unfortunately, we got some bad news in the uh, in the hobby world today. Yeah, so it's unfortunate news that Bob Letterman passed away. And for our listeners who don't know Bob Letterman, you've probably seen his work countless times. He is a legend, uh, and that's putting it, you know, mildly in the diorama community. He was a pioneer in large-scale dioramas, massive efforts to scratch build things in one sixteenth scale that are the size of a kitchen table. One of his most famous dioramas, and you can easily Google it. It's called Legacies, and it's a uh, a town square that's just absolutely massive with the liberating Americans going through it. I believe it. I think it's in Germany or somewhere in France, but it's it's flawless. I'm talking, you know, three, four story buildings, a river, and and a little bit of information about Bob. Bob, you know, from the St. Louis area, he was a detective, then started building models. And he started a corporation called VLS. And that was in the St. Louis area. And they hosted, I believe they hosted MasterCon every year. And that was a massive show that, you know, Bob put on in the team. And it really brought some of the best modelers throughout the country and sometimes world and just a really great fixture of the hobby. Always a super nice guy. He had a museum as well. It was called Miniature World. And I believe it was transferred into his basement recently. But some of the classics, not only from him, but other people such as Louis Pernod, uh, some international folks as well were there. So it's it's really sad to hear him uh, hear him pass. But you know his legacy will live on. And, and it was... I, unfortunately, I've never met him, but I've known of him forever. He was somebody my dad always talked about. And I have his super diorama book, which it might be on sale at Sprue Brothers. It's a, it's an older book, but really helps tell a story of dioramas. And it's fairly cheap. You can pick it up on eBay and I would highly recommend it. But yeah, you know, uh, the, the community lost another great member, and but his work will live on and his legacy will too. That's a great tribute, John, and just echo everything you said. I mean, for years and years, looking at those VLS catalogs and looking at his work, I mean, like you said, his his influence on a whole generation of armor modelers and diorama builders, it really can't be overstated. I, I want to jump in here too. I, I remember those those flyers we used to get every month from VLS and seeing his stuff in there. And that legacy diorama is just 
unbelievable. You have to, if you have, you don't know what we're talking about, please, please Google it. I mean, you got General Patton and an M20 in the front of it getting ready to go over a bridge. And you've got on the left hand side, you have this column of Germans that are surrendered. There's like 30 of them, you know, and, and it's like JB was saying, it's like, five, you know, four or five story buildings. And on the very top, there's a, there's a railway bridge with an M16 anti-aircraft half track sitting on top. And this guy's looking over the edge and it's just, it's, a, it's, it's unbelievable. It's the guy is, the guy was, he was, he was a fantastic builder. He was the nicest guy. You know, I was friends with him on Facebook and he was always updating. He was always sharing great stories about him and Lewis and Verlinden. And, you know, these, he was just one of the, one of those nice nice guys and he will definitely definitely be missed i'm not real good with with names and people uh, remembering people if i haven't actually talked to him in person but here i am looking i've actually got a page a google page of his uh images right now pulled up on my pc and yeah if you don't know him look him up you'll you'll know him as soon as you see it you'll recognize his work it's it's fantastic well, our, our condolences certainly go out to his family. You know, as members of the extended model community family, he will be missed. But I think, as JB said, his work will always be remembered. You know, before we really get into this episode, I think it's important to acknowledge that the Plastic Posse is brought to you by Tankcraft, makers of fine modeling accessories. Members of the Posse, are you still using the Aunt Mabel scrapbooking map on your workbench? Really? Well, it's high time to upgrade to something much more suitable to the sophisticated modelers of the Plastic Posse. Tankcraft cutting mats are heavy-duty, self-healing, come in two convenient sizes, and have really cool World War II tank and aircraft blueprint drawings on them. Spread out your next group build on the Panzer Gray Tiger One, or maybe the Military Green P-47 Thunderbolt. You can check out all the dope designs at tankcraft.com. That's tankcraft, T-A-N-K-R-A-F-T.com. Pick up a Tankcraft Pro Modeler mat and up-armor your bench. Oh, and don't forget, Plastic Posse listeners, use the code POSSE15, P-O-S-S-E-1-5, at checkout, and you'll get 15% off your first order. I think it's also important to acknowledge that in addition to cutting mats, they have fantastic ancillary products, rulers, anodized glue bases, and they're expanding their 3D track line, which incorporates Tiger One early and late, T34 several variants, and they just released the KV-1, or at least announced it, and our good friend Scott Gentry has a sample. I do. And I'm very excited. Uh, they're beautiful. Uh, it's a, a dual pin system. The fit, uh, just like the tracks that JB and I uh, looked at earlier, the T34 and Tiger Tiger tracks, uh, they're flexible. They're not brittle. The fit is wonderful. I got so excited when I got my set, I ordered a brand new Tamiya KV2 to come wear these uh, beautiful tracks. So anyway, uh, yeah, Tank Craft, highest quality stuff out there. Check them out. And if you guys don't have one of these mats on your bench do yourself a favor get one you won't be sorry all right it's time to send a shout out to the posse outriders these are listeners who support the Posse by becoming Patreon contributors. If you'd like to support the Triple P and become a Plastic Posse Outrider, it's really easy. Just head on over to our Patreon page 
at www.patreon.com slash plastic posse podcast and set up a recurring donation there. You can donate any amount you would like. This supports us. It helps us offset the costs of bringing you the triple P. There are three different tiers of support and they start at only $1 per month. Without further ado, let's give a shout out to the Outriders for episode 46. Starting with the top tier, our awesome deputy marshals. We have Josh Buck, Luke Carswell, aka Black Rifle Model Works, Thomas Bannock, Mark Bradley, Zach Pease, Joel Munson, Eric Brubaker, David Brian Bridges, aka DB Scale Model Studio, Jared Cowell, JC Osborne, Mike Talley, Steve Baker, Bruce the Model Noob, Grant Mayberry, thanks Grant, and Rick Cooper. Next, we have our posse foreman, Enrique Perriam, a.k.a. Race for Terra, Ian Bonner. Happy birthday uh, yesterday or last week, uh, Ian. Very happy birthday. Mr. Grizz, Rob Burnside, a.k.a. Red Beach One Studio, Jeremy Moore, the voice of Bob, Steve Munsell, a.k.a. Value Gear Head Honcho, Matthew Johnston, John Vitkus, Jamie Stokes, Craig Jarbo, Mike Bird, Jeremy Elliott, Mediocre Model Aged Modeler, Dan Nofel, Eric Daglish, Eric Semmelmeyer. Lastly, but not least, we have our posse outriders. We have Neil, Jackson, Simon, Martin, Chris, Lee, Robert, Brian, Matthew, Paul, David, Ethan, Steve, and Jamie. Well done, deputies, and we really appreciate your support. All right. You can also make a one-time donation to the Plastic Posse via PayPal. To do this, just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner, just click the little heart icon, and then you can donate any amount you would like. You certainly don't have to donate, but we really do appreciate it. We also really appreciate it if you would go support us by leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcast. A five-star review really helps the Posse be visible to more people searching scale modeling podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please stop by our Plastic Posse YouTube channel and subscribe. We're going to be delivering a lot of content from the IPMS Nationals. You can find it there and on Facebook, so be sure to like and subscribe on both. Just a reminder, the Posse is just one of several scale modeling podcasts out there. If you would like to see a list of some of these other podcasts, plus other social media creators, head over to uh, modelpodcast.com and you will find a link to many of them. If this is a great location, everybody, you need to check this out. There's a whole bunch of groups in there. Man, what a great guest, Grant. Thanks for that. You know, he, he comes on with us and we put him right to work. So really <laughs> appreciate that. Great job. All right. Well, it's time right now to intro our main interview for the podcast episode. We, uh, Doug and I, uh, actually quite a while ago, we got to sit down with one of our longtime supporters from the UK, Rick Lewis. He's a great modeler. He, uh, As I mentioned, he's a longtime supporter of us and he owns a historic carpentry business, really fascinating interview. You're going to love it. He does carpentry, but he specializes in restoration and preservation of historic buildings over there in the UK. You know, they've got buildings that are hundreds and hundreds of years old, and he's he's something of an expert, and he's a great guy. He's also part of Enrique Perriam's uh, Race for Terror group, and he's a great modeler in his own right. So without further introduction, here is that interview. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to another Plastic Posse Podcast interview brought to you by Sean's Custom Model Tools. 
We always talk on the posse about the amazing super sanding blocks, but did you know that Sean also makes a lot of other great 3D printed tools such as sprue holders, tape dispensers, and many other great tools for your bench? Check out Sean's awesome new website and all of his products over at seanscustommodeltools.com. Today we have an awesome guest for you. He has been a great supporter of the posse from the very start. Live from the UK, Rick Lewis joins us. How you doing, Rick? I'm doing good, guys. Thanks for having me aboard. Well, we are excited to talk to you. I know you and I have been speaking via messages and emails for a long, long time. So we're excited to get to know you and then also get our listeners a chance to know you, uh, to know you as well. Let's start off with a little bit about you. Tell us who uh, Rick Lewis is. Uh, well, I'm aged. I'm 55. <laughs> Father of two, but a parent of four, employer of, of uh, some pretty amazing guys. I live in the middle of rural Suffolk uh, with my partner and her two children and a crazy little dog. And uh, we uh, try and eke out a living here in, in, in the middle of nowhere. And I, I'm very happy in the middle of nowhere. It's my kind of place to live. I've been modeling on and off most of my life. I probably kicked off, I think, in the mid-70s. I was thinking earlier, trying to think of uh, salient dates, but probably like 74, 75, making airfix kits as a kid, the inevitable usual thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, absolutely love that. That was a, a, a real passion of mine for, for some, some years until that inevitable teenage slide into, well, <laughs> the usual nonsense. Um, punk rock stole me away in about 1979, I think, and that was the end of me and models for some years, for a few years. But I kind of tangentially came back to it a little. Uh, some friends used to play D&D in the mid-'80s, so I started doing that, and I started uh, painting figures and doing campaigns. Not long after that, someone else introduced us to this crazy new battle game, rather than just having a little uh, a group of merry band of uh, thieves and elves and whatever. We started doing big pitch battles with the original edition of what was, what became known as Warhammer Fantasy Battle. So I had a big army of orcs and goblins and so on, and we'd fight against dwarves and elves, and I did that for several years. So I've even, during those adolescent years into my 20s and so on, I still had some kind of contact with it. I painted a bit, but inevitably most of what we played with was bright white metal marching across the board, which was, you know, unpainted, very little scenery, you know, more about the tactics and the game and just hanging out, building these crazy things. I still liked building, probably building more than painting, certainly considering the, the lack of stuff that was painted then. About that time also, late 80s, I guess, I fell into doing medieval reenactment with some friends. And that really captured me for some years. I really went right down a rabbit hole with that, doing it to the nth degree. I remember a, an earlier guest that you had was referring to uh, mixing up their own paints with, with egg tempera and so on. <laughs> yep. I ended up doing a late medieval, late 15th century War of the Roses period. And after a little while of, of being a, a target, I was what we call a billman, kind of like a halberdier, a man at arms, just a simple everyday guy with very simple harness, simple armor on that was part of the bill block. And we were in, inevitably just target practice for the archers. And I got a bit fed up with that. And several of us were of the same <laughs> mind. So we decided to set up a medieval artist studio. 
So we took over this English heritage property and we were grinding our own pigments. Uh, we had lots of brushes handmade. We got handmade paper. We were doing printing, illumination and so on. I really went right down this rabbit hole of late 15th century history, social history, military history and so on. But I was still part of this military-based group, us old farts who were all cynical about the young guys running around hitting each other with swords and trying to be dashing and failing miserably. We decided that we were going to build ourselves an artillery piece as well. I had a friend who worked at the Royal Armouries at the Tower of London and, and he'd had me uh, help him crew this uh, late medieval cannon that they'd reproduced and we went various places in the country shooting that and so we decided in in our medieval group to build our own uh, so we built a field artillery piece with wheels I did most of the woodwork I was a carpenter by trade by then and I did most of the woodwork except for the wheels a couple of the armorer guys did the metal work for the barrel and so on we got it proofed so it was all legal and legit. At that time, you could run a medieval cannon with, I mean, the bore was probably about four inch diameter. So, you know, a reasonable size field artillery piece. You could run that on a shotgun license in Britain. That wasn't me. That was one of the other guys. It's a pretty big pipe for a shotgun, really. Um, <laughs> so we took that round the country to various castles and demonstrated that and scared the bejesus out of people with these big loud bangs <laughs> and basically stood at the back and were all cynical about all these young guys dashing around with long flowing hair while we just made noises at the back. <laughs> um, I retired from that, but by then I'd fell in with this couple of guys who ironically uh, used to work for Games Workshop. And uh, they were some of the, the main figure designers of the figures that I used to use only years prior to then playing Warhammer. And that was Alan and Michael Perry. And it turned out Alan and Michael were great tabletop historic war gamers. Alan, principally known for his Napoleonics. Michael, who I got on very, very well with, he was known for his colonial British stuff. So uh, I started doing a lot of uh, 25 mil tabletop gaming, painting up Indian mutineers, British infantry, right, right from the first Afghan war through to the Tirar campaign at the end of the 19th century. Anything India, North, Northwest frontier, that kind of thing. I was absolutely obsessed with built big armies of Afghan tribesmen and so on. And yeah, so wargaming. So my interest in building and painting little things and creating little worlds took another left turn and, and did this other crazy thing. I, I don't know. I drifted off with that a little bit and had certainly given up the, uh, the medieval stuff by then, by the reenactment. And sadly, not many years later, probably about a year after I'd retired properly, there was a horrible accident in France with the artillery piece that I'd built and it took uh, Michael's right hand off. So he, by then, and still to this day, is a notable figure sculptor, a notable illustrator and artist of principally of colonial things, but other periods too, and does it all with his left hand to this day and still is an amazing, talented guy. So yeah, that was my strange period of, of being some kind of tabletop gamer. But from that, even though I drifted away from that after a while, I used to buy a lot of books uh, printed by Osprey. You must have come across Osprey. And they produced these terrific little tiny uh, paperbacks like the Men at Arms series, the Vanguard series, and so on. Steve Zaloga has written loads of really good in the Vanguard series on different AFEs. And, and I've, even though I was no longer involved in any of these things, I still regularly went to the bookshop and I still regularly bought Osprey books. And it was still this strange nerdy thing that I was interested in, reading about warfare, reading about military hardware, uh, you know, uh, of all different periods and right through to the modern day, which I actually became more interested in. But in tandem with all of that, my life as a carpenter very early on at the end of the 80s 
took a bit of a strange turn. I'm very disillusioned with it. I was going to go off and study medieval art history, except it was such an obscure course for our little local provincial college that they decided not to run it in the end because only three of us signed up for it. So I ended up going back on the tools, back to just to working on modern day-to-day sites. But this company that I was working with sent me out to repair a, a medieval church. And uh, one thing led to another. And now, 30-something years later, I'm still repairing medieval buildings. I run, uh, I lead a, a team of, of really crack guys. Uh, we repair buildings throughout the county, a little further occasionally. We build some new framing as well. We've really become known for taking on the real difficult cases, collapsing buildings, uh, buildings that are in a perilous state, repairing and rebuilding them and putting them back to, to what they perhaps once were, not restoring them back to some sort of medieval museum piece. They're still modern functioning buildings, obviously. But uh, yeah, we've become quite well known, done stuff with the BBC and so on uh, about medieval buildings. And, and that became another sort of string to my crazy passion of all things historical and so my whole life, despite having an ungraded qualification in history from school, my whole life centers around history. My work day, my leisure time, everything I do is to do with history. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, it seems like the common thread, there's two things, your love of history and your need to do something with your hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like building stuff. Uh, and I'd say even now, having done you know, a good few scale kits lately, and all the um, other stuff. In, in between, my son got into Warhammer 40,000, uh, so I did that with him for a few years. I went off into my own little niche with that, with the sort of sub-niche of 40K called um, the Horus Heresy, principally because I saw it as as something, I don't know, more realistic. It was it was uh, better painted and so on. But, yeah, I, I, I really got switched on to building stuff as a hobby again, principally because of my son wanting to play this crazy tabletop game. I just wanted to build scenery. I just wanted to to build the kits that he bought and so on. I've always liked to build stuff. Yeah, I guess I've always liked gluing stuff together. <laughs> well, you're really, really fortunate. You know, before the recording, you were talking about, you know, where you live in England and, and sort of an abundance uh, in that region of historical buildings. Yeah, uh, we've been very fortunate, but, you know, it's one thing has always fed off of the other. It's my nerdy enthusiasm that I think has always been nurtured by this this love of building stuff from scale models through to Warhammer or 30K stuff. I've always wanted to create things. That's allowed me to look at historic buildings as something more than a job. You know, I come home and I do think about these things. Okay, I have to to some degree because it's my business, but I have to look at it really deeply. Anything I do, if I build a kit of something, I don't just take it out of the box, glue it together, paint it as the instructions say, and put it on the shelf. I Before I build something, I buy and read several books on the thing that I'm going to build. You know, I really do dive deep into it. You know, I've got lots of Steve Zaloga books. Um, you know, I, that's the only way I can get into giving it the hours to build something, to, to paint something, by having that, connection with the thing that I'm spending all those time all that time with it's it's the only way for me it's just in my DNA I'm afraid <laughs> I'm just curious on, on your carpentry you know you you've sent me some pictures of your work and it's it's really beautiful but how much of your work that you're doing is you know sort of the functional part of carpentry versus the restoration and the preservation like the types of wood you use? Um, 
principally our, our, our main customers are people who live in the houses. You know, they are part of our cultural and architectural heritage of, of the region of the country, but uh, they are people's homes too. And it's striking a balance between working out what's of historic or archaeological value that needs to be retained, paired or recognised and you know supported if it's fragile and, and so on, being uh, able to, to be viable in a modern home. But also it is about bringing it alive. It is about, to some degree, restoring the aesthetic of that medieval Tudor home. So sometimes it's restorationist and it's putting back things that are missing or, or replacing things that are broken. And sometimes it's being pragmatic and trying to retain as much core historic fabric as you can, even if it's perhaps not 100% anymore, if it's broken or if it's partly decayed, and shoring it up with other additional components that keep it in place, almost a sort of museum mentality in the, you have that maximum retention of historic parts. It's, yeah, it can be a difficult balance and the local authority who oversee the protected buildings that we work on, not every historic building is protected, but that, that there's a certain amount of oversight from local authority and historic England. So striking a balance between Mr. and Mrs. Client who live there and uh, the sort of the diktats of, of a protected building, making that come together successfully is a challenge. But I, I don't know, sometimes we let our inner nerd run riot. I think I sent you some pictures of something that we'd rebuilt recently that had had a disastrous fire and had subsequently started to collapse. And we did all of the things that were structurally necessary to turn that back into a skeletal structure. We only deal with the heavy carpentry elements and then it's down to other trades to turn it into a home with plaster and, and you know, the moving parts, the doors and the windows and so on. We just do the core historic heavy timber work, the timber framing, as you call it in the States. But we did let our inner nerds run right and we did run some of the mouldings, you know, so where a moulded medieval beam had been damaged in the fire, the conservative way of repairing it is to put a new end on it so it functions as a structural item. But wherever possible, I would also want to conserve the aesthetics of that thing because there's a balance to be worked with there. So we've run the, the fiddly little mouldings on them as well or put carving on them and so on so that they're a, a complete uh, visual structure. And hopefully the client will bankroll that, <laughs> even if they're on a tight budget. And, and hopefully uh, at the end of it, we've, we've conserved more than just core fabric. We've conserved an aesthetic and we've, we've conserved the balance so that people could understand this thing as a piece of standing archaeology. But yeah, it is, it's a subjective thing. Um, and each of us, even in with it, within the team, see things slightly differently uh, to what our clients do, what other observers may do and so on challenging yeah. sometimes but fun you know it, it, it floats our boat it switches us on we're all to a greater or lesser degree engaged with what it is we do it's, it's more than just a job i'd say it's a life it's pretty fascinating i mean it's almost one-to-one -one scale modeling if you want to yeah. if you want to yeah. look at it because yeah. you, you you mentioned the research element yeah. you mentioned the you know the passion for preserving you know the character and the history yeah. of of those structures not just treating them as utilitarian no it's an integral part of what we do it's an integral part of what we offer to our clients as i say 90 plus percent of our clients are people that live in historic buildings but it is more than that we've built to i think they're a little spurious but uh, to supposedly reproduction anglo-saxon buildings at a nearby Anglo-Saxon site. We're, we're fairly near to a place that some people further afield may have heard of, Sutton Hoo, uh, the burial ship 
site of one of the last kings of East Anglia, uh, King Redwold. Uh, but not too far from there is another site known as West Stowe, which is a group of about 30 excavated buildings of the, the mid and late Saxon period. And they've recreated about eight buildings there. One was then burnt down, which we were then asked to replace as an insurance project. So we had to replace it like for like how it was, because that's what the insurance would bank. By then, we'd got a bit of a name for ourselves as being capable of doing hand conversion. Another strand of my nerdiness, I built up quite a collection of early woodworking tools, principally broad axes. So that's big flat bladed axes for converting round timber into square beams. I've got them from all over the world. I have some American ones and uh, lots of, of European ones. And so we, we've been mucking about with them in our days off and break time, learning, uh, teaching ourselves how to convert timber from round felled trees into square beams as our forefathers did in the past. Uh, we also did trestle sawing with big two-man saws and so on. Like you have in America in uh, say, sites like Colonial Williamsburg, that kind of thing. The, the Saxon village place asked us to look at rebuilding this fire-damaged house because we were the natural local go-to guys. Not only had we got the framing skills, but we knew how to hand convert round timber, which is how the site had been done. So we then got to build one of their really earlier buildings that they did in the early 80s that started to collapse. Again, they asked us to rebuild it as it had been built, which I think is, is pretty daft, really, given that it started to fail as a structure, <laughs> that we've basically copied that. We were just guns to hire for that. But we've done other things like that. I think I alluded to you before in previous discussions, we've done a couple of siege machines. Uh, in my reenactment career, uh, I went to this terrific place in Denmark, in Nickerbing, the Medieval Technology Centre. And at the time, they had some of the largest... Um, functioning medieval siege machines. We got to have a go on these big wheel-driven cranes. Uh, now they have a wheel-driven, like big hamster wheels either side uh, on these trebuchets, and it shoots across this big open stretch of water. So they have these big uh, cast concrete balls, uh, and they can land them in a one meter square every time because it is such a well-calibrated machine, and every piece of shot is exactly the same weight absolutely fearsome things. So from having worked those and had a fascination with that, we were asked to create a similar thing to a trebuchet. It's called a perrier. So it's, if you imagine like a, a trebuchet is a, a long stick with a sling on one end and a, and a heavy weight at the other. Instead of the heavy weight, the perrier has a number of ropes attached to it and a team of people will pull those ropes down that pulls the arm up and launches the sling with the shot in it. It's an early medieval weapon of war. Some of them were really quite big, certainly capable of taking out um, a unit of billmen um, and reducing uh, fairly modest castle and building walls as well. So we were asked by the Tower of London Historic Royal Palaces to build one large working perrier that was used for demonstrations in the moat, in the dry moat at the tower. Uh, we did another one, which was a pretend one, a smaller one, an anti-personnel one, to overlook uh, Tower Wharf. I took great pride at the time that it overlooked uh, Boris Johnson's office <laughs> when he was mayor of London, but it would never have shot that far, sadly. Um, and we also built this other thing called a springold, or an espringold, which is basically like a bunk bed, uh, with a torsion engine in it, so it's twisted sinew and it shot bolts. So it's like a really super powerful crossbow. Wound up to the extreme, 
they are really something fearsome. I think you can kebab three guys with a big one. There's accounts of them going through multiple people in, in, in um, advancing infantry blocks. Um, but ours was a weedy one by comparison. But yeah, we built this, this Perrier for use in the, in the dry moat. And you'll be proud from the other side of, of, of the Atlantic to know that the, the record for its uh, furthest shot uh, in the dry moat, they used to fill balloons with water and get a, a disparate crew of four people from the audience. So these were four people who never had met each other. They could be old, young, big, small, and they would pull on these ropes when told by one of the demonstrators and they would launch this water-filled balloon a, a few metres up the dry moat. Well, one day nobody put their hand up except four US Army Rangers <laughs> who were <laughs> capable of working as a team and were capable of doing something in, you know, in a synchronised manner. And they launched the balloon so far that it actually hit the wall of the dry moat. And had it gone just a little bit higher, it would have gone across over to Tower Hill Station, the tube station. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, these things with a, a bigger version, with a bigger crew and a crack trained crew would have done really great stuff. Yeah, having did, did that for, for them, we uh, were asked by this other guy who had a privately owned trebuchet would I build a new throwing arm for his trebuchet so he brought this little one on his trailer to the workshop and we'd pre-cut this thing and and put it all together for him and then launched cabbages across the field next to my workshop to 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 make this thing work and to fine-tune it and make sure that it worked properly and I've got behind me I've got the payment for that we decided not to get paid in cash (laughs) <laughs> as a 1943 Mark II English uh, Canadian manufactured brain gun. <laughs> nice. So that was our payment for creating a new throwing arm for this guy's for this guy's uh, trebuchet. I mean, I mean, Doug. I don't know about you, but you know, all of a sudden, my Tumia kits don't seem so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Siege engines and trebuchets and. And do you know, now I do a bit of modeling. I, I, I still haven't had the desire to build something like that yet. I, I keep thinking that maybe one day I will or, or build, scratch some, some uh, medieval buildings or something, even for some kind of Second World War diorama or something, you know, with a medieval building collapse behind it or something. I should do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Speaking of, of models and, uh, and things like that, do you have a genre you like to build? Um, well, coming out of the, the heresy and 40K stuff, I happened to meet this guy online who you've met before, you've dealt with before, Enrique, uh, who uh, runs the Race for Terror YouTube channel. And he has a great little Discord. We're very small, but we're a great little tight little bunch of people. From meeting him and talking to him, we were getting a little disillusioned with that whole Warhammer thing and decided, right, let's go back to what we used to do as kids. Let's build scale models. And... Um, so I did the inevitable Second World War thing. I did a lovely little uh, anti-aircraft half-track, uh, you know, with the flip-down mesh sides and the anti-aircraft gun in the back. And then uh, Enrique, being Spanish, he he'd, uh, built uh, the 116th Breeder Panzer, Panzer One, that was used in the Spanish Civil War on the nationalist side. And being the guy I am, I said, well, we can't have a nationalist thing without a Republican one. So I built a Republican <laughs> International Brigade uh, BT-5 tank, which took me down this sort of Soviet armor rabbit hole. And and now it's it's sort of surfaced into, although I've done a few other things in between, I'm now completely obsessed with 
T55s, um, T62 is something that I hope to build this year. I have a BTR70 to build this year. I think probably if I had to pigeonhole myself, I'm, at the moment anyway, I'm probably Modern Warfare. I'm still buying uh, strange books. I still listen to strange podcasts, read obscure substacks and follow strange journalists, you know, frontline journalist guys um, on YouTube and so on. And I'm forever reading about Syria, Afghanistan, still to this day, I'm utterly obsessed with Afghanistan. The last thing I built was a T-55 from the Northern Alliance. And I have a couple of other Afghan subjects that I want to build later this year, probably more Northern Alliance stuff. I don't know. I might do a National Army one from recently. And, and I found a really good camo from a, 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 a Shilka, but it's a Taliban unit. And I'm a bit anxious. I, I, I have a certain unease about building something with a Taliban colour scheme. I don't know. I'm a bit squeamish like that. Like I'm like I wouldn't do an SS thing or something. Um, so I think I might do it, but do it knocked out. So it give me a chance to perhaps do some rust and some charring or something, something like that. I might feel more comfortable doing a, a knocked out Taliban unit. And then I can do the crazy camo as well. Uh, I've got a couple of Peshmerga things I want to do later this year, uh, some technicals. I've got a couple of um, uh, like Land Cruiser style trucks that I'm going to kit bash a bit and um, put some uh, crazy... Um, uh, like YPG, YPJ people in the back with with uh, dushkas, and the next thing I'm about to start on, hopefully, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, is um, a, a Hummer, a Humvee, uh, but uh, for an Iraqi SWAT team in Nineveh. I watched this terrific movie last year, uh, which I'd urge anybody who's interested in anything like that to watch, a film called Mosul. There's two films called Mosul. One's a brilliant documentary, but one's like a Hollywood-style movie about this crack SWAT team of Iraqi guys hunting out Daesh, ISIS, uh, hunting down Daesh in Mosul. Uh, A really, really moving film. They have these three black or nearly black uh, Humvees. So I've, I've bought a Humvee. I've bought one of the uh, conversion kits, the old Adam Wilder conversion kits from MIG Productions. And I've got a big pile of plastic card and loads of ideas. And I'm just going to cut and paste the whole thing together and see if I can build this thing from from the movies, basically. So not particularly factual, but uh, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know, Doug. I guess modern warfare is my thing at the moment. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm going to go back to the Second World War. My granddad was in North Africa and Italy uh, in the Royal Artillery. I, I have a couple of photographs of him in Italy. Uh, he was in on heavy howitzers, um, and I found a company that make a model of the heavy howitzer that he crewed. It's quite a peculiar one. Uh, and I found uh, someone who does a brilliant little resin uh, Eighth Army guy, uh, you know, with a sort of cocky stance. Uh, so I've bought that already. And I hope to do like a little vignette of him stood next to his uh, his uh, howitzer at some point. So I, I hope I'm not stuck in one period or one genre, really. It, it seems like your journey kind of takes you in different places. And so, you know, it'd be interesting to see where you're at in two to three years. Oh, Lord knows. Yeah, Lord knows. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have ideas, but then things come up. You know, one of the guys on the Discord said, do a 255. I wasn't going to do a T-55, I was going to do a T-62 um, because they were more of an Afghan-used tank. The T-55s didn't do very well over there, but in the end I thought, okay, I'll do it just to do a, a buddy build with him and it ended up a mini group build uh, and it should hopefully be next month's 
video that Enrique does on the race for terror. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. Someone will see some crazy idea or go and buy 16 books on it, read <laughs> for a month or more on it and, and decide that I've got to build it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just cursed with this, this uh, ultra nerdy deep dive attitude. Yeah, that's, that's called passion. <laughs> I, I guess, yeah. I mean, at the end of all of that, I, I don't think I'm a particularly fantastic modeler. I'm, I'm all right, but I, I don't really care. It justifies me still buying all these crazy books. You know? <laughs> I'm a real bibliophile. I'm obsessed with books. I have, you know, even when I didn't model, even when I didn't do reenactment, even when I didn't do anything that could justify buying books. Just like my mother always taught me, books are the way. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have hundreds of that kind of thing. I just buy scores and scores of books all the time. I'm not really a visual guy. I don't do YouTube for modelling that much. I do a bit, but, but it's more about books for me. It allows me to do it at my pace and my depth, you know. You are inspirational to, to, to a lot of models out, modelers out there. Who are your inspirations? Uh, well, I... I'd call in the question that I'm inspirational, but yeah, my inspirations. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought you might ask that. And do you know the one name that really stuck with me who I'm always interested in what he does is Zach Sex. He always comes up with some really interesting stuff. He's, he, I, I don't know, he just seems such a thoughtful modeler. He, he makes real left-field stuff. I'm sure he's cranked out lots of um, workaday things in his inimitable style. But um, he always seems to do really great niche things, really interesting things from real theatres that you wouldn't necessarily think about. So I've always found him interesting. I'm going through FAQ3 at the moment. So Ruben Gonzalez is, is high on my list. Inevitably, I started a lot of my journey looking at Mike Rinaldi. His stuff is just terrific. But uh, I, I don't know. As I said, I'm not a social media guy. If they've written books, I've probably got something from it. Adam Wilder, I mean, I, the, the two volume books that he's done, I, I think the way it's put together is, is good. There's a lot of typos in there, but, but I think as a modeling handbook of how to, to do stuff is almost second to none, I'd say. I think I've probably got more from those two volumes than a lot of books that, that presume to teach you things. There's something really special about how he gets stuff across. And I like his style too. I think what I like most about his work, and, and like you mentioned, the Adam's Armour books really capture this. It almost seems like when he's doing a model that each bolt head or rivet or weld bead gets its own level of attention. I mean, every yeah. single little element tells a story. That's my kind of mindset, as, as, as you have probably tweaked by now. You know, I mean, I'm not saying for one minute I can get even 10% near what he does. That's not what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of introverted mindset of looking at every aspect of it and trying to pull that together into a cohesive, coherent piece. I mean, it's, it's one thing being able to look at those details and do them beautifully or do them well, but trying to still create something at the end of that that is coherent, cohesive, that is interesting. It's, it's, I can see the same in carpentry. You can be technically good at carpentry, but it doesn't mean that for one minute you understand this historic beast that you're working on. I've seen lots of other people pair medieval buildings, and there's there's levels of difference in, in how people work and how people think about these things. So when you're building, are there techniques you really enjoy using, like that you feel you're the strongest at? I don't think I'm strong at anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
that's the first answer to that. Um, I don't know. I like building, and and I tell you what, I really like Doug, I, and and I got, I probably did more of this with my Horus Heresy and and forty k stuff. I like cut and pasting stuff. I mean, I'm not some kind of great scratch builder, far from it. But I, I like cutting stuff up and gluing stuff together. I like making my own take on it. My heresy army was Black Shields. They're kind of renegades. They don't have a supply line. They just rob and hybridize stuff. So everything they have is is a mishmash of, you know, it's almost like a militia attitude to things. So I liked buying stuff off of eBay that was broken or wasn't painted very well and wasn't very good. And then I'd just take it apart. I'd dunk it in some ISO, strip it and get some plastic card out and make my own thing. You know, if there was a bit missing, brilliant. That's actually even better. I'll make my own one or or get a a, a different variant thing from some other source, you know, a printed one or or something from eBay and, and jack together my own creation. And doing Black Shields Force allowed me to do that. So... I don't know. I still don't think I'm good at it, but I, I enjoy that mindset that allows you to discard certain things and add new things, you know, to just kit bash something out of bits. The Humvee that I want to do next, it's a Tamiya kit. It has a MiG Productions resin upgrade to it, which is a significant part of the model. But even that doesn't do what I want it to do. The cupola, I'm going to have to build out a plastic card and, and little resin rivets and, and my own stuff. And the Dushka, because the kit obviously comes with American weapons. This is an Iraqi weapon. They use a Russian supply stuff. So I've got a Valinden Productions resin Dushka. So I'll put all of that together to create this thing. And, and that will give me you know, a lot of pleasure making that rather than taking the thing from the box and building a Hummer. I, I'm sure I'd get some, some kicks from that. But uh, building my own Humvee <laughs> is, is, is definitely something that I'd get a kick out of and, and feel, I don't know, I feel like I'd, I'd hope to do it justice. Yeah. It won't be some award-winning magazine thing, of course, but yeah, hopefully it would be creditable. So that's my strong thing, maybe. But foolishness, I, I suppose, is just be able to dive in and just, <laughs> I don't need that. Put it in the recycle bin, cut another bit and make it myself. <laughs> that's, that's perhaps my strong set. <laughs> All right. So if that's your strong point, what, do you, what is something you'd love to work on? Like something you'd like to improve on or maybe try a technique that you've never tried that you wouldn't mind giving a shot at? Oh, yeah, the inevitable oils and pigments, all the stuff that, that most of us, you know, feel we're a bit shaky on. I could improve on everything. <laughs> everything needs improvement. I kidded myself that I should give it a go with an airplane of some sort, and a Gulf War tornado, which I said to Scott I'm building at the moment, and I thought I should try something different. I should push myself into a different zone and see how I get on with that. I've I've loathed and detested it almost throughout. <laughs> uh, prior to that, I built this Vietnam gun truck. I have no interest whatsoever in the Vietnam War. The model itself didn't really excite me, but it was a gift for my stepdad who helped me, you know, when I was eight, nine, ten, building airfix kits. He was a great asset to me. I think the world of him. And now he's, um, you know... Uh, a little bit more decrepit. He he said he'd seen this uh, Smithsonian Channel documentary program on gun trucks and what they call and what shouldn't I build one of them? I said no, I really don't want to build one of them. I said but I build one for you, <laughs> so I built it, painted it, and it's got all these crazy seventies decals on the side. It's called King Cobra. So it's like an APC body on the back of this big old um, logistics truck. So I, I 
pushed myself into doing something that I wasn't into, you know, building a kit. I mean, I think it had something like 600 parts. AFV club drove me insane to some degree, you know, <laughs> tiny, itty bitty little bits that just really didn't need to be a separate component. It's just nonsense. But I actually enjoyed the build throughout and I enjoyed painting it. I put it on a little base with a bit of foliage and so on. So I pushed myself into a different zone there. There's so many things that I could improve on. <laughs> Doesn't matter what I do. It's all a journey, isn't it? It's all, it's all about learning new cool stuff, trying out stuff. Yeah. Every time I build something, I'm trying, trying something new. Yeah. 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 Long may it remain. You know, I don't ever want to get to a point where it just becomes something that you churn out. That would, that would be dreadful. That'd be time to move on and do something different. What about what about science fiction builds? I mean, you mentioned Horace Heresy and Warhammer, and, and you obviously have a passion for kit bashing and scratch yeah. building. So what about like a little bit more, I guess, you know, like a Star Wars subject or a machining Krieger, or just just maybe your own your own creation? Are you interested in anything like that? I do like sci-fi. I mean, I did, you know, I was one of them kids queuing up in 70, whatever it is, to see the first Star Wars film. I, I, I don't dislike it but i don't know i feel certainly with the 40k and the heresy stuff i've kind of done sci-fi for now uh, if i watch sci-fi on tv i mean i love stuff like the expanse really getting into that like the new series of that i'm not enthused by the, the the ships though i wouldn't want to build one like that star wars i don't know a lot of the guys on the on the discord and regace guys they're all about star wars at the moment they love it it doesn't float my boat maybe someday something like that will come along tj's been posting a few pictures of his machine and krieger i mean yeah <laughs> tj's work as you know is just it's just awesome it's incredible his paint jobs are just something else his attention to detail is is just so wonderful if he was here he'd say it's okay yeah i'm sure he would yeah. <laughs> uh, but the machine and krieger stuff hasn't hit the mark with me yet i've not seen one that i liked there was a couple that looked all right i haven't felt like I wanted to build one yet. But by the time I've built enough modern warfare and Soviet drive stuff, maybe I'll be yearning for something different and maybe that will be where I go. You know, who knows? You use the term float your boat with your interest <laughs> in carpent carpentry and, and wood and everything. I mean, is like a sailing ship or something like that. Is it, do you have any interest in doing something like that? No, I, I, I did the inevitable airfix First World War, Second World War boats as a kid. You know, I had some distant relative who was on, on First World War warship. Uh, so I did stuff like that as a kid, but it doesn't grab me. I've seen some of the submarines I've seen recently look interesting, but I've painted a lot of black in recent years with the gun truck, with my black shields before then. It hasn't grabbed me yet. Although today I got a mail out from eModels and I see that there was some manufacturer doing a, a little mini sub with two guys sat on it. And I thought that looked interesting. Um, you know, to do something in resin or something as well. Um, maybe, maybe. There's so many great things to try out there. I'd love to do some kind of decent diorama. I have lots of ideas in my head. Uh, even before I started doing scale models, I had sort of evocative things that I had in my head. It seems like at the moment I'm just doing building and painting models to learn stuff. And when I think I've learned enough, I might, might do a diorama, which is madness, really. You know, I should just get a bit of wood from work and, and make a start, you know, just get the hell on with it. But I haven't yet. Or your partner could let you build that one-to-one scale trebuchet for the front yard. <laughs> yeah, well, she does enough of her own woodwork as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd be the envy of the village, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you wouldn't probably have any uh, issues with your neighbors, you know, otherwise yeah. you load some cabbages up to settle yeah. your dispute. Yeah, put my dog in it and send him over to sort them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be great for debt collection. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, your choice, rolling pin or trebuchet. I mean, <laughs> I think trebuchet wins. Yeah, 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 every time, every time. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 maybe I should I, – I keep thinking, you know, I had this real passion years ago that seemed to burn out. I had this real passion for the late Middle Ages. You know, why do I not at some point in the future explore that further, look at doing some siege machines or something? You know, I've got plenty of books on them. I've got some kind of insider knowledge on these things. So doing something like that, maybe, maybe one day, you know, scratch building stuff. Like that. I made all of those little sort of wooden kits as a sort of activity to do with my, my son when he was growing up. He built little wooden trebuchets and that that you get as, as kits and all pre-cut and, and so on. But, to, you know, to actually do something realistic, something that's based on historical precedent and, and you know, maybe even some, some medieval figures as well. But it hasn't happened yet. Maybe one day. You mentioned your love for books. I mean, do you ever think about maybe writing a book? No, is the short answer. <laughs> I was asked to write a book on uh, historic country, and I did even sign the contract. But as as the deadline drew nearer, and I basically zero, I backed out of it gracefully. And I think the pressure of writing something like that would just be too much. Um, there was a time when I thought something like that might be an interesting thing to do. I, you know, I do a, a little bit of writing. I've got an article to write. I, you know, I, I do surveys and schedules for for repair projects and i do lecturing you know some kind of public voice is is a good thing uh, but you know not in modeling god no um but uh, yeah my work as i get older and more decrepit i've got to look at using this one uh, skill that i have that i know i've got to turn that to my advantage as my hands and my body cease to work physically as well as it used to do i have to probably write more it's something I'm going to have to face up to, but certainly not in modeling. <laughs> you know, speaking of sort of future plans and everything, you know, we've asked other members of the posse and guests we've had, we've asked this question. So if you had, you know, right now today, a magnum opus build, so like the ultimate model build for you, diorama piece, whatever it is, what would that magnum opus be? I had, I had a little bit of an idea years ago of something from Afghanistan that I'd like to build. But actually, I've come up more recently with a little diorama in my head that I hope one day I put the skills together and, and actually sit down and build it. I've read and listened to a lot lately uh, in northern Syria, in Rojava, uh, with the Peshmerga fighters, and found that really, really inspirational. The SDF forces and their fight against Daesh, you know, some of the most despicable, dreadful people. And I, I have this image in my head of one of those vehicle-borne IEDs, them explosive-laden vehicles, which would be a great scratch build because they usually armor plate them with lots of plate steel. So it's usually a civilian vehicle that's, that's covered in very simplistic armor. And I have this image in my head of a couple of um, SDF on the road in front of it uh, and a wounded, probably male YPG guy being helped by a YPJ, which is the Women's Protection Forces, trying to assist him and get him out of the way as this thing bears ever closer to them. But it reaches the point in her head where she realizes that she's not going to get her comrade out of the way in time. And this, this hideous thing is going to hit them. And I just imagine this woman with such a defiant expression standing there with her, her feet stretched apart over a wounded comrade, giving him the finger as this... <laughs> 
hideous man bears down on her in this VBIED. That's this thing that I've concocted in my head, uh, having listened to and read so much about that theatre in the last couple of years. Uh, I found it so inspirational and their fight in Rojava against against Daesh, rooting them out of places like Raqqa and so on. I found it such a, an interesting but hideously challenging thing to, to read about and go through. That's the idea that formed in my head, was to build that as some kind of salute to these amazing people that stood against that and took it down to all intents and purposes. Sounds like a great story. You know, storytelling for dioramas and vignettes is so important. And I mean, certainly sounds like you, uh, you'd be conveying a great story. I have the story in my head, but yeah, the putting it together with the skill set of, of not only the modeling, but you know, the positioning and the, the setting out of the groundworks and so on and making that work as a three dimensional object. Yeah, that's going to take some further thought. But yeah, in my fantasy world, if, if I'm allowed to create this thing, as you asked me, that's that's the thing I'm working on in my head at the moment. That sounds awesome. That would be really, really cool to see. And and a different approach to, I've never seen anybody do a diorama of something quite like that. So, so that would be fun because it would be original too. It's just this in, indomitable spirit that I've, I've read about and listened to uh, so much lately. Just these everyday people taking the fight to these hideous, hideous people, basically overcoming them. Although I think they're sadly they're coming back, but sticking it to them. <laughs> well, you mentioned a couple of your projects that you're working on, but any other projects on your bench that are coming up that you're uh, re- researching and excited about? Well, I'm a one project at a time guy. I can't do it any other way. And I've had such a logjam with this Desert Babes tornado on my desk. Um, it's nearly there. I've done the decals last night, and now I'm going to do a bit of basic weathering on it. I've got the ordnance to uh, finish building and painting and put that on, and then it's going to the back of my cabinet, <laughs> and then it's on to my Humvee. Beyond that, um, I don't know. There's a few of us that have talked about possibly doing some kind of group build on the on the Race for Terror uh, Discord. I don't know what kind of things that we might get up to this year. I, I've got on the shelf to build uh, a T62, a BDR70, um, and a Shilka. I'd like to do them. Any of those would work in, in, in Syria or Afghanistan. I certainly have all those in my mind bought the decals, I bought the metal tracks, I have all the gear, it's there. If the zombie apocalypse happens tomorrow, I can hunger down and build kits. I'm all right. <laughs> I've yeah, got the gear. <laughs> that's that's my loose plans, but but uh, beyond the, the, the Humvee, I haven't really firmed anything up as yet. Because that's going to, you know, by the time I've done the, the tornado and the Humvee, that's the next, probably the next two to three months out of, out of the way. It'll be into summer by then. Who knows what I'll be doing then. Well, Enrique is a, a great guy and uh, being a part of his small community, that's got to be terrific. I know, like you mentioned, TJ uh, participates in, in that group, but I, I love his approach to, you know, break, first of all, breaking down the barriers between war gamers and so-called traditional modelers but also like his very pragmatic approach to weathering and his kind of continued encouragement to just, you know, if you don't know a technique, just do it, just try it. You know, he's, he's great. He's inspired me and the guys on the discord have really inspired me. I think Enrique's approach is, is, he's a real, he's a modeler of the real world. You know, he's, he's, he, he comes at it, came at it like myself for a while from a wargaming background. It was to, create playing pieces basically uh, without wishing to sort of do down the things that we built and painted um 
but to do them darn well. And now, you know, going into scale models, he's doing a lot of the Star Wars stuff uh, now with his son, uh, still to play to, I think it's Star Wars Legion. I don't know. I don't play yeah. the game. Yeah. To play the game. But, it, you know, the scale modeling he's done with the wonderful little um, 1920 or so armored car he did, the Michael Collins armored car. Yeah, he's a man of, of, of real sort of pragmatic skills. You know, roll your sleeves up, get on with it. That's my attitude. Rather than just finicking about stuff, worrying that you can't do something or, or you know, needing to be super special at everything, just dive in, get on with it. Um, and, and we've all inspired each other to just have a go at stuff. You know, if you don't know, put your hand up and someone else will probably try and help. And if if, if you do know, pitch in and try and help others. You know, and we've, we've really... I think we've all pushed each other a little bit in in the last few years since we've known one another, um, and and that's been a huge asset. You know, I'd say not you know as coming at this from someone who doesn't use social media, I do not have a Facebook account, do not have an Instagram account. I don't operate that way. The nearest I get to that is his Discord, and that's the sole Discord that I use. Um, you know, um, to try and swap ideas and support people um, has been a real step change for me but the other aspect of that just to to give you guys feedback is is the podcasts you know some of my work time is is fairly solitary or fairly noisy with my ear cans on um and and i've i've the last few years i've listened to so much podcast stuff uh, not just modeling ones obviously but but all of the modeling ones i listen to and i've gained so much insight from listening to them and they've given me different and avenues to follow uh, different rabbit holes to go down you know oh this is a good product this is a good plane this is a great guy who's done this great book and it's, i've just forever you know driving and i get home and i'm trying to keep this thing in my mind so i can scribble it down when i get in and look up this book or look up this new wonder product that everybody's banging on about uh, yeah i found it massively massively inspirational and helpful which is peculiar isn't it from an audio medium <laughs> we've all i think so many people have given you this feedback that it's been a massive leap forwards for us for something that we do that's entirely visual and practical <laughs> who would seems have thought pretty, it seems pretty daft doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is you know if you put that on paper a few years ago and said i've got this great idea you know we'll do it all and it'll be purely audio no video <laughs> that's not going to get any legs on a, and, and on a has, visual hobby it? right on on something we do with our hands to see and to we're just talking about it like i say i don't really do youtube that much for modeling but i listen to hours of podcasts you know all the podcasts come out i listen to every single one of them minute by minute by minute um uh, you know when i'm driving to work when i'm at work whatever uh, you know in my leisure time but actually very rarely when i'm at the bench (laughs) (laughs) that's when i usually do have youtube on but it's usually music <laughs> yeah, that's that's me. I, I I actually I listen to podcasts when I uh exercise or walk or yeah. when I drive in my car, but yeah, the bench I, I listen to music. Uh, yeah. the podcasts tend to you know, I tend to kind of keep moving the model aside so I can tune into what's being said and take notes. So yeah, they distract. <laughs> so if you like podcasts that are non modeling related, like his histories, anything like that? Yeah, there's a, hist- a couple of history ones. I like, uh, you must've come across the, um, James Holland, Al Murray one. Um, yep. we have ways 
oddly, I was on there last week, last week, the family histories one, the family stories one. Um, nice. my, my granddad's one was right at the end. It's only a couple of minutes. Uh, yeah, I think it's episode seven in series two of family stories. And it's the very, very last one. And I was thrilled that Al Murray read it, um, because he, it, it is a humorous story, uh, and he injects a real bit of humor into it. And it's a story that my granddad told me on numerous occasions, as granddads do. Um, and yeah, so that was, so I listened to that and I listened to James Holland's brother's uh, podcast, uh, The Rest is History. That's really good. Um, and I listened to, um, uh, without wishing to go into the, that spectrum too much i listen to a bit of sort of political stuff and journalistic stuff there's a great guy jake hanrahan uh who runs a podcast called popular front and a lot of that is is on modern warfare um from a um a sort of journalistic and an analytical point of view uh, I've, I've learned an awful lot about modern conflict from that and the numerous rabbit holes that that has sent me off down strange um uh, sort of um, uh, authors writing on. I got a, an email from this thing the other week saying uh, weapons used by the PKK in 2021, and it basically went through all this footage and photographs of what had been used by the PKK in the previous 12 months, and identifying these strange Chinese copies of AKs and oh, Jesus, <laughs> strange nerdy little things. I listen to that kind of stuff. <laughs> What about the first podcast I ever listened to was Hardcore History um, with Dan Carlin. Dan you ever Carlin. listened to that? I did listen to a couple. Yeah, I did actually. Yeah, I, mm, a little grisly at times, I found a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to do him a disservice because he's clearly a great guy, but perhaps a little bit sensationalized. He picked out the more salacious or goriest bits and, and, and put them front and center, I thought. I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, but still good good stuff, yeah. Yeah, he. I, th I think he definitely gets into detail, and yeah, I think it can be that way, but his series on the Japanese in World War II, is that Tsunami in the East, Doug? I think it's like Supernova. A, Supernova yeah, Supernova in the East, in the East oh, is like is a six yeah. six podcast series, and I think one of them's like six hours long. Wow. So yeah, wow, just a really deep dive in. I should look them up again. Know. Yeah, I did some on the Ost front. I I, I did, did yeah. some of that, but uh, yeah, some of that was pretty challenging. But then you know, rightly so, it should be challenging. It was that kind of thing, wasn't it? So that's really good. I mean, I love that kind of depth. I've learned so much more about. Um, the Second World War from just listening to the to the James Holland and Al Murray podcast. You know, they've reevaluated so much from the, the British yeah. Commonwealth side, um, which the sort of textbooks that I grew up with as an army obsessed kid um, kind of slapped us down really and said we were a bit stodgy and sat around drinking tea all the time. Um, and, and, and I'm heartened as a Brit, obviously, to have that revised credibly as well, you know, and, and, and uh, brought and out into the open better. Um, so that hurrah for that, hurrah for them. Um, I think getting under the skin of these subjects is really important. It's important to me. Um, and and as I've said already, that's, that's the way I model. I try not to overthink the actual modeling, but I try to over, I probably definitely overthink the planning and the, the lead up to the modeling. I want to understand something about that vehicle and I definitely want to understand something about those people and that theater where it was deployed. I want to understand that that's what 
gives me enough of an interest in it to drive me through the tough evenings sat there gluing little bitty bits on that really should have been molded on in the first place. <laughs> have you ever been to a scale model world? No, never done a show like that. I used to go to a war game show uh, locally. Um, I've been to a few of the Warhammer ones and um, I went to a big, a uh, couple of the bigger war gaming things in London and up in, in, in the Midlands years ago, but not for scale modeling. Scale modeling to me is, is apart from the 70s as a kid, this is all new to me. Um, only the last 18 months, two years have I been doing scale modeling. Okay, you can take into consideration a few years of, of 40K and 30K stuff, of course, but uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's fairly new, really. And your your location there in England, uh, you know, we were talking about this before the recording as well. You're sort of in a really rich spot as far as the center of the modeling universe there. <laughs> yeah, I could probably make a few people envious by saying that I'm an hour or so from Hannams <laughs> and their vast warehouse full of uh, nerdy stuff. And, and I'm just about an hour and a bit from Duxford, Imperial War Museum, Duxford. Although when I've gone to Duxford, although I've gone there for, um, I think we went there for one of the, the D-Day celebrations where they had lots of D-Day strike planes and, and so on. I was mostly in the, the armoured bits, <laughs> looking looking at the tanks uh, and the airborne stuff. Uh, yeah, I was more interested in that. Uh, and and the stall holders, because it's a great place to go and buy heaps of books and struggle off the field afterwards with a backpack full of books, which I absolutely did, of course. <laughs> Yeah, then, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm fairly well placed for that kind of thing, I guess. Then uh, you said three or four hours from Bovington. Yeah, uh, to my shame, I can't admit to having ever gone there yet. Um, <sighs> certainly, as a kid, I wanted to go and see all of that kind of stuff. Last year, um, we we found to our surprise that there's a tank museum about forty minutes from here, um, and it has. Uh, almost exclusively British Cold War stuff. So it's the Norfolk Tank Museum. And my partner paid for me to go uh, for a day out there, a special day where um, I got to um, have a tour of the museum with the director guy. Uh, they re- I don't know if you've seen it in the States, whether it got ported over there. There was a one of our sort of local, uh, one of our British TV personalities did a series on rebuilding a first world war tank well that first world war tank is at their museum that's the only non-cold war thing that they have there so i've got a tour of all of that with with the curator guy um and then we got to drive um a haglands which is this all-terrain swedish track thing with a track trailer so we took that up and down all of these crazy slopes um and then i got to drive a salad in armored car um, which was just terrific, except for the gearbox, which was anything but terrific. Um, and the fact that the seat was either too low or dangerously too high, that if you did lurch forwards, you'd probably need a lot of dentistry afterwards. Um, <laughs> so, but thankfully, there was no other traffic in the field to, to worry about crashing into. So I did that, and I had such a fun time there uh, talking to him and, and driving these crazy vehicles around in, in the, on the muddy slopes uh, that um, every year me and the guys usually have a day out, and I pay the guys for the day, and I pay for lunch, and we go and look at a few medieval church roofs and some of the previous work we've done as a sort of learning exercise uh, and as a nice fun day out you know fun maybe in inverted commas to some degree but uh, so this time I thought well they're probably bored we're going to look at medieval church roofs so 
I'll spring it on them as a surprise. So what I did, as I said, uh, we're going to case out a job, look at this this um, possible project that's come our way. So bring a packed lunch, we'll be there for a while. You know, it was a working day, so they had the scruffy work clothes on. We all piled into the van, off we drove to the Norfolk Tank Museum, and as we pulled onto the forecourt, I said, so we're here for the day. This is our work's day out. <laughs> so all of us then drove the Haglands. All of us drove the Saladin Armoured Car, and that was our work's day out. So I do have a tank museum fairly close. Um, and thankfully, you know, it's, it's all fairly recent stuff too for my own interest, so that was great. What about uh, in your region of uh, the UK there? You have uh, some castles close to you? Yeah, we have some good castles, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's something we have no no castles in Utah. None yeah. at all. <laughs> Little too new here for that. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, well, um, I've, I've worked at a few. Obviously, I've worked at the Tower. Uh, we did a, a covered walkway on the east wall of the Tower of London, although that was a, you know, a sort of tourist fiction that we did, really, and it was mostly on on stuff that was mostly rebuilt in the 19th century, but we were working right next to Tower Bridge uh, on the Tower of London, so it's a pretty cool site to be working on. Um, very secure for leaving your tours on site at night as well. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's that's about an hour and a bit away. Um, I've worked at Colchester Castle, which is one of the earliest castles that we have in the country. Uh, origins is in, in, in a Norman castle, but it's actually built on top of the ruins of the Temple of Claudius, uh, which was destroyed in the Boudican Revolt. Uh, and I actually are very privileged working there, uh, redisplaying one of the galleries with all these bits of medieval woodwork. Um, we found this, this place that had been sealed up since the 1930s and we broke it open in order to, to do some new construction there. And underneath it was lots of packed away bits from when they did slum clearance in the interwar years um, from, from areas of, of Colchester, the town, which is a really good old town. And they'd knocked down lots of the, the, what was considered then substandard dwellings, but were actually really cracking medieval and Tudor buildings. And they'd taken away some of the important, interesting components, cased them all up and put them in this little uh, hidey hole and then built a floor over it. So I was there privileged to, to help unpack all of this and look at it and reassess it. But lo and behold, underneath it all was actually the steps to the former Roman temple <laughs> or, or, you know, proportion of the steps. Um, so, yeah, that was a pretty crazy place to work and a pretty crazy um, time to be there when when that was discovered and the archaeological team went in and looked at it and, and assessed it and so on. But it was basically us that discovered it. Um, we're near Framlingham Castle um, and uh, uh, Orford Castle. They're the two really good castles near to us. Well, that's, uh, that's terrific, man. I would love to have to come visit sometime and You'd go be to, <laughs> go to, go to Bovington and check out these castles. Yeah. Like, like I said, in our part of the world, it's a little too new. So that's pretty fascinating. Our old stuff is Anasazi, Fremont. It's a few hours from here, but old ancient, uh, people's sites that are still around, but, uh, but nothing like castles. That's my wife. I can convince her to go on a trip over over your way if if I promise her she can see castles. <laughs> She'll go. Well, if you end up in East Anglia, you must give me a shout. I'd be more than happy to be your host. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. I can certainly get a few doors open of places that you wouldn't normally get to see. Well, we just want to thank you for being, you know, giving us great feedback for the posse. Um, like you said, you're a little bit hard to find on social media, but, you know, you've sent me some 
photos of your carpentry work as well as your models. And it's, uh, you know, terrific and uh, really have appreciated the feedback you've given us, uh, you know, for a long time, you know, almost since we started. Well, what you do, you do very well. I mean, all the podcasts are great. They're all great fun to listen to. They're all instructive. They've all been inspirational. But uh, you guys somehow, I don't know what it is. There's just a magic between you guys and and you you struck a chord with me. So, you know, long may it remain. All power to you. I think what you do is is really, really something. And uh, it would be a shame if you weren't here now that that we have such a wonderful thing. Uh, So do keep up what this wonderful thing is that you do please do thank you well you're very very kind thank you very much and uh the podcast has given us the opportunity to make new friends like you that you know we never would have had a had a chance to talk to and we really enjoyed that aspect of it so yeah no you do you do it well so long may it remain well, best of luck for your carpentry business. You you just do amazing work and keep those model pictures coming, you know, keep after it and look forward to seeing what's new. And you, you've, you've got the heart and eyes and hands of a craftsman and, and the passion to go with it. So pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. I mean, I'm thrilled, honored, flattered and stunned and surprised to be asked to be on there, to be honest. Well, this was fun. This was a lot of fun. You have some incredible stories. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk for a long time. Well, thanks so much, Rick. You take care, and uh, we look forward to seeing more uh, more of your work. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. All right. That was a really great interview with Rick. Such a unique background and you know his other hobby slash profession. That's, that's super cool. And it's always cool to see the backgrounds of all these modelers and how unique they truly are. So thank you again, Rick, for taking the time to talk to the posse. It was great getting to know you and certainly not the last time we'll hear from you. Now, moving on, we have a couple big updates. The IPMS Nationals are fast approaching. I don't know the time, uh, but it's certainly less than two months, but it is going to be here before we know it. I'm super stoked. I have too many projects and too little time to finish them. We're all very excited. We're excited to meet all our guests. The show is progressing flawlessly. Vendor tables, I believe, are sold out. The United Museum is sold out. Registration is in the hundreds now. It is shaping up to be a fantastic show with people coming from all over the country and world for that matter. So it's going to be awesome. Cannot wait. We have a few activities planned to engage with our listeners. One is we'll actually have a roundtable discussion similar to what we had in Vegas with all of the podcasts that are attending. So that should be really fun. That's going to be an hour long. And I believe it's going to be Thursday, I think. They're still sorting out the schedule, so don't hold me to that. And when it's published, we'll be sure to let you guys know. In addition to that, we're going to have an informal mixer on Wednesday night. So if you're just getting into the show, you want to come hang out with us, us, the geeks, everybody who's going to be there, the Moj, I believe they'll be there in time. Hopefully they will be. They're showing up Wednesday. Who shows up Wednesday the Nats? But it, it should be a great time. Jokes aside, Wednesday night, come see us. We'll be in the atrium of the Embassy Suites. It's so much easier to just meet there as opposed to a conference room. There'll be a bar and it'll be a really great time to see people and everybody will be rolling in and it's going to be just a flat out blast and certainly a blast before the show as well. Scott and Doug are coming over, Sam Dwyer, TJ and Ivan are all coming into Denver. We're going to have a little pre-Nats party. So if you're in the Denver area or passing through for Nats, please let us know if we haven't reached out to you already and you'll be able to join us for some fun and then off to the show 
Yeah, John, and then uh, for our Patreons, uh, keep your eyes on our Patreon page. We're also going to have a get-together at some point for a couple of the tiers of our Patreon supporters. That's going to be a lot of fun, and we should uh, have some uh, posse swag with us as well as some tank craft stuff as well. So uh, look forward to seeing everybody at Nats. Awesome. Can you imagine? Vegas, we, we met how many of, of our listeners and I mean, we didn't know who was going to be there and a bunch of people came up and introduced themselves. And and now that that COVID's kind of in the rearview mirror, mostly, I, I can only imagine how many more people are going to be there and we're going to get to meet y'all. This is going to be unreal. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, I cannot certainly wait at all. And we'll have a table in the vendor hall, which will be great. So we'll be next to Value Gear, Ammo by MIG. And also, I believe BJ DeBecker is going to have a vendor table as well for Panzer Concepts. So please come see our row, essentially. Say hi and and check out Steve's awesome wares because he'll have the new M18 set there that'll certainly be popular. Grant, when are you flying in? I uh, actually fly in Wednesday night. So I'll be there around I think four or five in the afternoon. So pick perfect. Up the car. I've got the uh, party shoes on, ready to go. And I'm going to bring us, uh, Doug and Scott, a case of Coke Zero. So we'll have some <laughs> good time. And uh, it's going to be great. Like you said, though, I mean, if you haven't been to a Nationals, you got to go. It's just the best time in the world. You meet some of the best people in the world. And it's just a fun time. It's going to be great. I can't wait to meet all these guys that I've been talking to online on, on Facebook or Instagram. And, you know, it's going to be great. Just can't wait. Well, and don't forget the 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 best part of all is uh, we're going to take our good friend Ivan from the UK out for an Omaha steak, and uh, you're not going to want to miss that. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be very fun to see how his reaction when they put that big, huge thing down in front of him. It's going to be great. John, we need to find a restaurant that'll give Ivan one of those old 96ers, you know, from the great outdoors. Oh, gosh. You know, I, for Ivan, too, we're definitely going to road trip it in fashion. We're going to find a flying J. We're going to stop, have him pick up some meat from a rotisserie that could have been there a week. We're going to get him at a trucker hat and then a three Wolf Moon t-shirt and have him buy some beef jerky and sour cream and cheddar potato chips. It will be off the chain and a Mountain Dew code red. So I am I am so excited. Yeah, you got to make sure you get one of those big 96 ounce cups too. You know, those ones that last for like, yeah. (laughs) One price for all. Posse Hazing, send him inside to a truck shop and have him ask somebody for where he can find an aubergine, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Poor you Ivan. know, and we've had a bunch of listeners suggest places Ivan should try, things he should eat, but maybe we need some listeners to suggest how he needs to prepare his intestines for this trip yeah. because it might be ugly. It, it might be ugly. I'll bring the Tums and Pepto <laughs> and then if we'll take them over to Taco Bell. I feel like they have Taco Bell in the UK, but there's probably something about American Taco Bell that makes it American Taco Bell. So yeah, yeah it's good. Not, not in a good way either. <laughs> not in a good no. way. Hopefully nobody walks past the Posse Hospitality Suite. Here's, here's some screaming with a UK accent. Gonna call Homeland Security after that trip to the bathroom. Yeah, someone's dropping chemical alarms. <laughs> no, it should be great. Him and TJ are gonna come in Saturday morning, I believe, and then Dwyer gets in in the afternoon. And we'll have. I think we're gonna do Pike's Peak here. We're gonna do Coors Brewery potentially, and then even a Rockies game. So we're gonna have a full lineup. Maybe even some museums mixed in. And then we'll make the trip to over to Omaha on Tuesday. And we'll probably live blog it the whole way, I think. It'll be a great time. And we're going to caravan. So Doug and Scott are going to be here. And we'll probably do 3-3 in a car. And I absolutely can't wait. I just bought patio furniture. So we're going to have some dinners on the back deck. Super excited about that. You know, you're an adult when. But uh, yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's going to be great. You know, it's going to be like those road tripping uh, scenes from Dumb and Dumber. Oh, for sure. Uh, I got to say, I'm sorry. You got to say some fun Fetty out there. Of course. So here's the deal. We're going to have it in Denver, but I'm thinking if possible, we might transport some to the Nats. I can't guarantee they'll be there on Wednesday, but there might be some Tuesday night for people. And it might be easier just to make a sheet cake as opposed to cupcakes. But I think it might be a posse tradition to have to have some fun Fetty. Good call, Grant. Damn, how could I forget that? All right. While we're on the topic of Nats, I think it's very important to acknowledge some group builds that we have going on. The M3, M4 group build is in full effect. We got a lot of great stuff. As Scott mentioned, Matt McDougal is doing some great work. Check out his springs. Really cool little feature for his model. Little gizmo. That's great. I think it's also important to acknowledge Ivan. I don't I think he, again, lives in the matrix. He built a a grant from Tacom in six hours and has it ready for primer. And he's painted it, that cool desert scheme. So mad props to him. That's probably why he didn't show up. He's just tired from not sleeping. Yeah, he went full TJ speed on that build. Unbelievable. I mean, a Tacom kit's not not difficult, but it's certainly not a Tamiya slammer build either. And he just whipped that thing out in record time. And it's gorgeous. Yeah, I, the, the the bogeys on that thing alone are not easy. I mean, there's like there's a lot of parts in the just individual bogey runs, and then I I kid I kid you not, I I went to work and I started. He sent a picture of him starting it, and then by the I wasn't even done with work yet, and he was done, and I was like, amazing. Yeah, for sure. And he's not the only one. I think it's important to call out Doug Reed. He's doing fantastic work on his M30. He's got it OD'd up and looking great. We also have Peter Fizlowski. He's got his. M4A3105, almost ready to mount to a base that's looking gorgeous. He has that trailer with the motorbike. He's also got a Firefly he's working on. And then Steve Baker, our resident fighter pilot, is working on his M50 and learning how to scribe and make weld beads. So we're turning av geeks into treadheads, one person at a time. And Steve gets bonus points because he's been modeling at his kitchen table due to an unfortunate plumbing accident in his model room. So bonus points for you, Steve. Yeah, for sure. And I talked to him today. He dropped a lot of retail therapy. He bought some of those F-15s that were on the lightning deal at Sprue Brothers. So good for you, Steve. <laughs> one, you know, one last person we have to mention. And uh, he's he's the young gun. And he, he keeps putting out stuff to still remain relevant with the posse. And that is Zach Grizzle, the shizzle. His M4A176 is absolutely gorgeous. Scott, uh, you know, Scott, you, you've said it before. Zach has evolved so much over the last year alone. His work is fantastic. His his Sherman right here, it's up there. I mean, it you could literally tag anybody, dare I say, even Mager Wilder to a picture and it could pass for it. He's done a fantastic job. And, you know, if he decides to put it down and not break it or screw it up, that'll be a great day. You know, he had to repaint the barrel this week. I think that's important to acknowledge. But bottom line is, Zach, Shout out to you. Fantastic work. We cannot wait to see it in person. You've certainly elevated your game on this one. And I would say this is your level up build. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we give Zach a lot of, a lot of, you know, grief because we like him so much. But, you know, like I said in our last episode, you know, when we, we first started kind of meeting with Zach and, you know, hanging out with him online. He was, he was an incredible builder already, but he wasn't painting. And to see this build, where it's come from and where it's gone, it's just really terrific. Couldn't be prouder of you, Zach. So like, uh, but like John said, put the model down, move it aside. Don't touch it. We'll see it at Nats. 
For sure. And, you know, Scott, you mentioned it there. He's a great example of doing your research in terms of technique development, you know, reading books, asking questions, you know, we love it. That's, that's one thing we love is our group so interactive and so collaborative. And he was every step of the way asking for feedback. And it was, it was just fun. And to be honest, he did all the hard work. We just said, yeah, that's awesome. Paint your tail lights. And that's, that's about it. Yeah, really, really terrific work. Grant, have you seen that uh, Sherman that Zach's been working on? Uh, yeah, and it's it's just, like you said, it's so beautiful. Did you see the picture he put up with the little tiny spider on his? Yeah, uh, that, that was great. That was amazing. I was like looking at the tank. I'm like going, how big is this spider? It's a tank. Oh, my God, that's a model. It's a, and that his paint job, his paint work is uh, is just phenomenal. I mean, the kid is just, and I don't mean it as a derogatory comment by calling him a kid. The He's phenomenal. Uh, you know, his work, his detail to work is just, and he's so accepting of, you know, anything. He's, if you give him an, if you give him say, Hey, you need to do this. He's like, okay, thank you so much. And I'm going to try this. And he tries it and he says, yeah, it worked great. Or it didn't work for me, but it was a great idea. You know, it, that, you love that. I love seeing that in a person. Yeah. And he's got the best radio voice since Wolfman Jack too. I mean, for a kid his age, he just big booming voice, you know? Yeah. It's got that WKRP in Cincinnati. What is it? Johnny Fever voice, you know? It's, I'm going way back there for you young kids, but you know, that's, that's the kind of voice he's got. Yeah. Last thing, you know, Grant had mentioned there, Zach is very open to feedback and takes all of it. You know, we'll circle things with red and send pictures back to them. And within 15 minutes, he's like, hey, I fixed it. What do you think? And just really elevated this build and looking forward to the next one because he's he's pretty sweet. Somebody watch out for. He needs his work published. So Zach is Johnny Fever. I'm Les Nesman over here. With my weatherman <laughs> voice, right. So if if uh, JB ends up being Venus flytrap, I don't want to know who that makes me. So <laughs> we better just move right along. All right. One other group build dimension. I think it's really important. Our sister podcast, our partners in crime, the Model Geeks. We're the treadhead for the aviation aspect of scale modeling podcast. They're doing an A4 group build, any scale, any variant, and it's looking pretty sweet. There's a lot of great progress. I saw Nemo's work on it. There's a lot of other ones within their group build as well. They have a huge following, which is awesome. I have mine started, not finished, but it's getting there. Like I said, taking some time off work to hopefully put some hard effort into it. Just wanted to give them a shout out. They're going to have an awesome display at Nationals. Very much looking forward to seeing what's on the table for them. And if you're interested in aircraft in any way, shape or form, please go over, give their page a like, follow along the group build. And if you have an A4, dust it off or build one and bring it to Nats. I think it's going to be awesome. Well, that's a great update, JB. Really appreciate it. We're all super excited for, for Nats. It's just unbelievable what a great event it ends up being. Well, guys, um, you know, normally this is the part of the podcast where we'd have a discussion topic and we've got a guest today. So I think we ought to put Grant to work. Uh, <laughs> Grant, what's uh, something that uh, you'd like to talk about? Well, you know, we've been talking about Nats a lot and JB, it is 62 days away. So as of not too long ago, 62 days and like six hours or something like that. So I'll be the guy in the corner sucking his thumb, crying this, you know, trying to get stuff done. 
you know, I've been getting a lot of phone calls, not phone calls, emails, and people talking to me on and off. And Ivan actually brought it up in a conversation we had offline about what do I need to do to transport stuff and how do what what things do I need to do at nationals to help me get through the process and help me enjoy the time there more. So I came up with some ideas about some things. You know, we could talk about transportation, but let's let's just start with the first and the basic thing. Do your paperwork at home, get it all done, and you walk into the show and you're 90% of the way there. That is the simplest thing you could do to make your day or your morning or whatever you're checking your models in at nationals go so much faster and easier for you. And it's so much less stress on everybody involved. It's a great thing to do. And you could put, you know, if you do it online, you could put all the details in there you want. Now, I've judged nationals, three or four of them now. And I tell you, if you don't put anything in there, your description, because we read those. Um, so if you just say, I built this or nothing, it's not going to hurt you. But if someone comes in behind you and says, I did this, this, and this, and you start looking at that and you don't notice it on another model, that's, that's big. So put something down, you know, basic stuff. I painted it with AK paints or MIG paints. I used some sprue and I changed out the antennas. Just stuff like that. Normal stuff will help you so much. That's important to me. In my opinion, there's something that's also, I've seen a little bit less activity in, in the last couple of years at, uh, at nationals is um, the demo. I mean, they, there's some great people and I'm not talking about this because, you know, some of us are going to be given demos during the actual nationals, but there's also some great things you can learn from people there. There's always some fantastic aircraft weathering demos. There's also some, you know, historical. I'm actually giving one this year on hillbilly armor in Iraq from 2003 to 2005 because I've got experience with it and I've got some great pictures. Some of you guys have seen the slides, you know, fun. And it's just something different, something you can change. And you could learn something from this or your models. Um, you have two days to enter your models at nationals. And this is my suggestion. You don't have to follow it. But when I get to nationals, I don't rush to get my stuff on the table right away. I, I go to my room, I unpack everything, check it over completely, you know, because there might be a broken window out. There might be something that falls off, you know, and I clean my stuff. I got one of those little makeup brushes or a, a Tamiya anti-static brush and I clean it off. I look for fingerprints. You've got two days, guys. You don't have to rush to get them on a table. Take your time, check your stuff over. You'll be surprised what you find. Another thing real quick is a repair kit. Bring a small repair kit. Bring a little bit of paint, bring a paintbrush, bring a wet palette if you have some room, stuff like that. Because, you know, stuff happens on, especially if you're flying like I am, I'm, I worry about stuff like that. So I, I have to really pack my stuff carefully. Now, if you do bring a repair kit with a knife and all that stuff, put it in your, don't take it in your carry-on because TSA will have freak out over that. So don't bring that in your carry-on, put it in your check bag. Okay. Just be careful. Put some tape around the lids. If you bring something like glue or stuff, like that. So if it does, it's contained and just do that. And one more thing before I pass it over to everybody else is read the rules. You know, IPMS has rules up. The, the rules are already in place. Read them. Some of you might not even know that there's no out of the box this year. It's a new category called basic builds. You know, look at that. There's some stuff that you might be able to enter that you weren't able to enter before. There's a, there's a big one in armor that if there's an object on your base with your armored vehicle and it sticks above the uh, the height of your vehicle and it's not a crew member, if there's a crew member on it and it still sits above the top of the armored vehicle, it actually has to be moved to a different category because it's uh, basically a vignette or it could be a diorama at that time. So that's stuff you have to look into. And, you know, and transportation, we could talk all day. John, JB has a great system transporting stuff. He's got these Tupperwares and he uses uh, shredded paper, 
shredded paper people invest in it uh it's the best stuff to transport models i used to use foam the black foam like everybody else used to do i started using shredded paper and it's so much better one more thing don't glue your antennas in on your vehicles okay wait till you get to the show take some white glue put them in your base and glue them in there put a little bit of dull you know some to my dull flat around it so you don't get the shine from the uh, the glue let it sit for the night and then take your model down if you put your antenna in and when you take it, it's going to break. It, there's a very, very large chance it's going to break. So those are just a few things. And I wanted to pass it out to everybody else and see what they thought. Yeah, we can we can start from the very beginning, you know, transporting models, as Grant mentioned. I'm a little different. I have armor modeler. I have armor models and they're on bases. And with that, it's very easy to transport them. I don't do anything fancy. As Grant mentioned, shredded paper, literally shredded paper in a Tupperware container. Even without them on a base, you can set an armor model on shredded paper, you can put them next to each other and you'd be surprised how well they travel. As long as you don't tip the thing over, they travel very well. I've flown across the country, going to be flying internationally with them, transported them in cars, transported my entire collection across the country in the back of my wife's SUV in Tupperware containers with shredded paper. It works great. Now, I will say if you have something like an aircraft with delicate pieces like missiles, pitot tubes, other probes, then that's not the way to do it. I think there's some unique ways, you know, guys, they'll use toothpicks to kind of literally bracket the aircraft to make it not move on a piece of foam. But an interesting thing done by a friend of mine, he builds 72nd scale aircraft. He actually has, he takes them in cookie tins, but he'll put essentially blocks of foam under the wings to sit it up. And then he has something that essentially, I would call it a strap, but it's not, but it folds over the wings and it's you know, covered in paper towel, so it's soft, and then it tacks down. So essentially, you're mounting the aircraft on these foam blocks, elevating it off the bottom of the ba- of the packing box or tin, and it's secured, and nothing's touching it, and it works out really, really well. And I've seen them do that with 48 scale aircraft as well. Um, so just a couple ways to do it. Like Grant said, take your time. There's no rush. Find the right solution for you. You know, Grant, when you came out, you had a Pelican case, which I thought was pretty slick. That's that's thanks to my employer. Uh, I've got a Pelican case, which is nice. It's actually the the size that fits in the TSA, so I can use it as a carry on. It's uh, separated. It's got. It's really very very nice. It's. Uh, I was lucky, but I do put. I still put paper in it. I, you know, shredded paper in there, and I, I I still. It's got little sections where I can take foam out and move stuff around and make it make a little pocket for it. But like you said. That idea with the aircraft is fantastic because basically it's like hovering there then. So it's, you know, yeah. nothing's going to hit. So that's great. That's a fantastic idea. Yeah. And for people who are going to ship their models, uh, you can do something very similar, not with the uh, with the shredded paper, but, you know, transporting, if you want to ship a model overseas, like some of the folks for our group build, always double box it and have that double box not connected to the outside box because the force of the outside box will transfer into the inside box and then ultimately onto your model. And that's not good. If you are going to ship a model, double box it, and then you can pack the foam and keep it from moving inside the inner box and then keep it loosely packed with like bubble wrap or even popcorn kernels, uh, foam popcorn, that'll help as well dampen the blows during the shipping process. But that's that's a unique case. That's a pretty small portion. But for, for most of us that are driving or flying, 
just keep it simple in all honesty. Now, Scott is kind of a heathen when it comes to transporting his models. Oh, I don't know about that. You, you just wrap them in paper towels. <laughs> yeah, but they traveled well. I didn't That's have true. any damage. That's but true. I have a I have a guy here. Uh, Johnny's actually uh, a guy that you know, John Vickis. He came from the Ohio area, but he uses Lego bricks yep. uh, to transport his 172nd scale aircraft. It's pretty innovative what he does for him. You know, he showed Doug and I how he does that. And it's pretty, pretty interesting. But Grant, I like your list. I like the way that you're kind of being proactive. I mean, certainly, you know, John spoke at length last year before Vegas about pre-register, get those in, you know, get as much paperwork done, get your registration done so that when you get to the show, you can focus on what's really important, which is hanging out with your buddies, of course. And, and I love that, you know, being prepared, bringing a toolkit, taking some time in your room to really give your models a, a good looking over. This eliminate reasons for the model not to do well. It's just, it's a really, really good idea. And then the one thing I, I kind of took away from judging at Nats last year was the last thing you talked about. And that was reading the rules for the show and knowing those categories before you enter. We had not a small amount of entries in uh, different categories that were actually eliminated because the modeler didn't really understand the rules for that category. And as a judge, it's really a shame to see a piece of, of good work that you know somebody spent a lot of time and effort and they just haven't understood the rules. And so it gets eliminated because it doesn't meet the criteria for that category. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. And the thing is, too, is there's a lot of people at nationals walking around with IPMS t-shirts and they will tell you exactly what the rules are if you don't know. And if you're confused or you're just not sure, ask that question. They're there to help you. If you see me, you know, you don't know what I look like, but if you hear my stupid voice somewhere and you say, hey, what do I do? I'll say, I'll be the first one to help you say, hey, let's find you out where you where your category is or what category you belong in. We all put so much hard work into these, these, these little pieces of I like to call it plastic, plastic and paint. It's not about winning in the awards. I just want my stuff to look good. You know, I, I just want, I would, I just want to be able to say, Hey, that's my stuff. And I, you know, and have people say, Hey, that's really great. That looks nice. If you're confused a little bit, just ask. These people are here to help. You know, another thing I want to hit on, Grant, you mentioned writing things down on your sheet, right. and it's important to do that. And and it's important for a couple of reasons other than, you know, telling us what you did. But let's say you did have an accident on the way. Let's say you break an antenna, break something, bend a track, anything and everything. Literally star it and say, judges, models damaged in transit. This I think this is my 13th year judging at the Nats. When I read something like that, automatically, there is no fault to the build. It's a, it's, dare I say, a free pass, but it's... It's a free pass on that exact thing. Doesn't excuse anything else on the model that could be could be an error, but for that thing, whether it be a literally anything, if it was damaged in transit, please note it. Judges yeah. do take that seriously. It isn't counted against you, and it can really help your case in displaying your model and relieve some of that stress. Like, oh, I've worked so hard to get it here. I had an accident along the way. Please acknowledge it on the sheet. We take those things very seriously. You know, the other thing on the sheet, it's important, and I'd like to say this doesn't happen, but if you have something unique on your model, if the tracks are turned backwards, essentially, if they're reversed, but it's done on purpose based on a photograph, 
photograph. Please include the photograph and then also literally put a star to draw the judge's attention to it. Again, I'd love to say that judges are perfect and take things into consideration, but there are times when, you know, there is a simple mistake that says, oh, these are, these are on backwards discounted. And at the nationals, by the way, it only takes one little thing to be discounted in a category, which is a shame, but something as simple as that can discredit a model for any type of additional judging. So please acknowledge that on your form if you have unique things for that vehicle. It's important to say that accuracy is not judged, but for a case of, you know, again, a Sherman, if you have them on the opposite way, one Chevron's up, one's down, just please note anything unique about your model. We really take it seriously. If you put a, you know, they're, they're called brag books. If you put a brag book down, people do look at them. I'll be honest. I look at them when I'm not even judging. I think it's great to see what a modeler's done to, you know, their subject. That is really, really important. And then also, as Grant said, there's no rush to put your model down. It's almost like I have a, um, what, what's a, a, I'm superstitious. I never enter my model on the first day of the show. As Grant said, take your time, get to your hotel room, look it over. If you need to fix something, if, if you don't have the tools, guess what? You can find it. If it's paint, glue, literally anything, the vendor room is your oasis and you can find anything you want. And if, if you can't find it, modelers will have it. So take your time, look it over come back the next day. There's no rush. Judging ends Friday afternoon, I want to say. So you technically have three, almost three full days. And then the tables, there's going to be plenty of space. You don't have to worry about that. So take your time. Can I add something here? For those of you that have never judged, it's not like there's a group of people assigned to judge just your category. Those people are judging for three to four hours that Friday night. And it's, it's a long night. It's kind of a stressful night. And, and so if you do have anything extra like, uh, to add in your notes, like John was saying, like Grant was saying, make sure to add it because, because there will be things that if you don't draw attention to it may get missed because everybody's tired. And, uh, by the end of that night, everybody's just ready to go back to their rooms. So do everything you can to, uh, make sure everybody knows what you've done on your kit. Yeah. And and go back to what JB was saying. There was, I believe it was and JB. You can correct me if I'm wrong, if you remember, but I think it was, uh, 2018 in Phoenix, there was a M47 that had one track on right, one track on the wrong way. And he had a picture of it from the, I think it was the Iran-Iraq war. And I think that was where it was at. But, you know, and, and people were like, oh, he screwed it up. He put the tracks on. It's like, no, here's a picture. This is exactly what he said. He put a big star by it and he underlined it in black, said, this is the way I did this on purpose. And stuff like that, if you do some odd stuff like that, first of all, it's going to get noticed, which is a good thing. You want judges to say, hey, what is this, first of all? And hey, look, this guy took some extra effort and tried to copy this. You know, it's it's just one of those things. If you point it out, if it breaks, I've had stuff break on transportation and in transportation, I put on there, this broke during thing and they, they don't do it. It's just it's completely null and void from there on. They don't even look at that. So, you know, it's not a free pass, like JB said, but it, it's be truthful, do it the right way, read what the, the rules are, and then, you know, put it on your piece of paper and it helps so much. Yeah. You know, one other thing I want to mention is judges are not perfect. Mistakes are going to happen at the nationals. There's going to be a handful, probably three or four. I can count at least three or four made in the armor category alone. <laughs> and as Doug mentioned, these, you know, the judges judge for at minimum four to five hours, sometimes upwards to six to seven or in the early hours of the morning. They're judging thousands of models. Mistakes happen. But I guarantee you, at the end of the day, the best intentions are always put forward. And I've fielded questions in my position for IPMS even months after the show of individual 
individuals that have a case to make still, and they continue to make it if an answer isn't proper. But at the bottom line is mistakes happen. The best thing we can do is please reach out. And if you see it happening at the show, mention it as a mistake, as in a model is misplaced in a category. Let's say you entered in one category, you were moved. Go ask. Again, be professional about it because I've seen the opposite side too. It goes both ways. But if your model's been moved, if you see something that potentially isn't right, mention it. Things, you know, I will say the judges do checking every day. Every day at the end of the day, they'll scrub the categories to make sure that soft skins are with soft skins. Pre-World War II is with World War, you know, pre-World War II. But things do slip by when you're looking at hundreds, if not thousands of models in a specific category. And, and I just ask, be patient with that. Mistakes will happen. And if you do notice a mistake after the show, please email us. We do take these things very seriously. Again, I get two or three a year. I respond to the individual. I acknowledge it. I put forth a plan to make it better next year. CC the NCC, which is the contest committee, which is absent of the show committee to ensure that they're aware of it because they actually run the contest. So bottom line is please be patient if if you do see a mistake. We are only humans. It does happen. Yeah, I think it's it's also important to say, but it's not it's not only IPMS shows too. This just not categories this is IPMS. This is all model shows. Yeah. We've all been to shows where something has happened and a judge has missed something or did something wrong. You know, just something happened. And you know, understand that five hours is on your feet looking at models over and over and jumping from category to category and jumping from group to group is it's hard. You know, there's always going to be the naysayers out there and say, oh, they judge too hard. They don't look at this and that. But it, it is what it is. And it's enjoy being there instead of enjoying, you know, instead of expecting something at the end. I mean, that's my dad always used to tell me that, you know, have enjoy your time, your three days or four days in Omaha, go to the SAC Museum, get a huge steak, spend way, 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 way too much money in the vending room, go to some great demos. And then if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. There's so much to enjoy. I mean, there's so many nice people and so many great, great time you will have. And it won't be, you know, it's just, that's just a small part of it. So just enjoy yourself, have a good time. And brought this up because I want people to go and I want people to have a good time. But there's, these are things that can help you have a good time. Getting your stuff there, okay. Writing your stuff down, and don't put yourself on the table because when you get there, and I'm still, I've been to ten or fifteen nationals. I'm nervous. I am when I get that first day. I am super nervous, and I get the handshakes, and I'm like, you know, it's like I've been drinking coffee for twelve hours, or you know, been on a fourteen hour patrol or something like that. Like I said, just go to your room, put your models, up, get your models out, take a shower, do whatever. You've got two days, you know, enjoy it. Terrific list of of things to talk about. Grant and JB and really, really good perspective. Again, uh, the reason I'm going to Nats doesn't have anything to do with bringing home a little a little medal or a little award. It's to hang out with you guys and all of our friends out there. And if I come home with an award, that's great. But um, I think that's the the right way to look at it. You know, go out there to have a great time. IPMS and especially that host chapter in Omaha, they have put a lot of effort into putting this on so that we have this annual event and we can have a great time and that's really that's really the main thing and you know if it, if it happens it happens awesome it's just kind of a bonus but yeah it's a it's a great attitude just go to have a good time and keep that in perspective yeah and i would encourage anyone to help the show as well they always look for volunteers it can be as simple as a security guard to helping them literally with any 
anything logistics, you know, set up, tear down, you know, throughout the show, and then also judging itself. If you've never judged at a nationals before, I highly recommend it. It is long, it is daunting, but at the end of the day, you really learn a lot. You see so much more than what you what you're not used to. It allows you to have more of a critical eye when building a model. And it's also fun. You get to you get to really look at what's been entered on the table. And personally, I think that's the best part because I know for those four or five hours, I'm locked into that room and I'm looking at everything there. And actually I take pictures during judging as well because I can't get to the you know contest room at any other time. And then I'll post them later. But it's it's a really fun time. And it's fun when you judge with your friends too. I want to ensure I want to make it clear like there's no back channel like like, oh yeah, conspiracy theory about who's going to win. No, that's that's not what I say when judging with friends and having fun. It's it's literally walking through each model with your friends, talking about how they built it, how they painted it, what they what you love about it and what why you think that model should be rewarded. And then when you whittle it down to the top three, four, that's when the fun begins. And by fun, I just mean the slog of really making tough decisions. And at the end of the day, there are more than three models on that category table that deserve an award. It's unfortunate that you only have to give three and that's the toughest decision you're going to have to make for a judge. Also, um, when we judged, they gave us snacks. There will be snacks. This there were year. snacks. We got, I got chips, Ahoy and nutter butters. Oh, uh-huh. nutter butters. I missed the nutter butters. Yeah, there were nutter butters. <laughs> I, I had think they some. had Capri Suns too. That's right. It was a trip back to Y2K there in Vegas or sorry, not in Vegas, but in Omaha, they're going to have snacks again. I know that for a fact. So, which is nice. It is a long night, but it's a long night. It's a long night, but it's fun. And when you say judging with friends, guess what? You may not know the people you start with, but you've got friends right there. Oh, for sure. I mean, you will be friends with your judging team when the night's over. Actually, when I judged, I judged with the 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 couple who the guy proposed to his wife at the award ceremony the next wife, the next night. It was his girlfriend that I judged with. Oh, nice. wow, that's so, great. That was the first pro- that was the first marriage proposal ever at an IPMS Nationals. Brought him up to the stage and <laughs> and he proposed to her on the spot. That was pretty great. No comment, JB. No comment. <laughs> Things like that make the show what it is and yeah, it's- there's so many preconceived notions about yeah. scale model shows, but you yeah. know, throw them out the window. I'd like to think that the podcasts are helping break that mold where just do it, man. I I, yeah. I dress up for the award ceremony. Yep. We, we, we wear like our black shirts yep. tucked in and we have our red power ties for the Pittsburgh crew. So it, it's, it's a fun time. And, you know, I have a Jolly Roger flag that I want to bring this year. And every time one of our members wins, we'll wave it around in the air and groups hooting and hollering. So it, it's a fun time. And it's truly one of those events, you know, you make it what it is and, and there's no limits on, you know, having fun. Oh, agreed. I mean, it's such a, you know, and the, the awards, the award banquet is to me, it's fun. And I, you know, I see these people like, like Joe last year getting, you know, IPMS member of the year. That was fantastic, you know, and that was just, you know, things like that. And just, you know, everybody clapping and seeing, and one of the big things about the awards is, which is nice is seeing the reaction of the juniors and the juniors parents when they win awards. I tell you what, that kid that I think it was a P51 Mustang at one, his mother was that was the best thing I saw in four days. His mom st- stood up, started clapping and yelling. I was the poor kid. He was a little, you know, he's like a little shamed at first, but he was he was enjoying it. But it was it was great to see that see the youth in there again, and it's just such such great time. That little kid at Kami's uh, Fest that, oh. that won the uh, that won uh, the great big model ship that was bigger <laughs> than bigger than he was. He you know ran up there and then he's trying to drag that drag that back to his parents. 
Encino <laughs> Dragon on the ground. That was awesome. That was great. That's like the picture of TJ's daughter with her grin that was like from ear to ear that when she had those pictures on his. That was phenomenal. I just love that stuff. Grad, that was a great discussion. Uh, hopefully, uh, everybody out there is as excited as we are for this event. Um, we're just looking forward to it. Grant, great suggestions and great ideas uh, to make your uh, Nationals experience uh, even better. So anyway, appreciate that. Well, Doug, um, how's the feedback uh, looking? Do we have any for this episode? We've got a few. Um, I actually had a question from a friend, Roy Pedersen from Norway. He wants to know something. He wants to know if it's allowed to post pictures of his models or figures that are completed on our FB wall. Scott, tell him what he needs to do. Yeah, actually, uh, we have a couple of different Facebook pages. Our main page is just for the podcast, uh, just for us. But we have a Plastic Posse group page. So uh, just search for Plastic Posse group. Go ahead, um, apply for that. And uh, we not only uh, allow it, but we encourage you to share your work and comment on other people's work. There are a little bit of uh, of rules to go along with that. We ask that there's no spam, no politics or religion, and we insist in our particular group that you keep it positive. You know, that's what we do um, in our in our group. And But anyway, yeah, Roy, so uh, please share your work. Uh, we'd love to see it. Look forward to it. Awesome. Ilya Yut, uh, he, he has a question for us. He wants to know if there are any Battletech or Mech Warrior kits in decent quality and scale, not the three centimeter tech tabletop stuff. Um, he likes the books and games about robots from the 90s. He just wants to know if there are kits he can, he can build of those. So if any of you are aware of it, please uh, go to that uh, Plastic Posse page and give us some uh, info on those. Yeah, we need TJ, I think, or maybe Enrique or uh, John Bias maybe to help us answer that question. Okay, and one more question. Regarding our Patreon page, we had our friend Rick Cooper. Um, he wants to know about the tiers. Yeah, we can go ahead and talk about that. Yeah, we have three tiers. We talked about it in the last episode, and of course, they're on the Patreon page. But uh, we've got the dollar a month tier, which is just the Posse Outriders. And then we've got the Posse Foreman tier, uh, which is uh, $5 a month. And then the top tier is our Deputy Marshal tier. And um, each tier has the benefits of the tier below it, along with additional things that you can do. And so um, if you go to the page, it'll kind of line those up. I won't go through all those details, but, you know, we just, for each additional tier, we just want to add a little bit more back to the people that really support us and uh, kind of contribute back to them. But even at the dollar tier, you're going to get early access to our episodes and interviews and other content and uh, be able to PM us. And then, you know, from there, we add additional, you know, things like swag and, you know, autographed pictures of JB lounging by the pool, you know, just things like that. So awesome. Well, thank you. Um, There's there's not a whole lot of uh, feedback other than that. I do have a question for everybody. Personal question. Are we really going to this, through this whole episode without mentioning Machine and Krieger? Ooh, wow. Dang. <laughs> Just putting it out there, asking for a friend. <laughs> I have one in progress, and I'll be taking one to Nats. Awesome. Well, we don't talk know, about it because Aaron bought everything, so there's nothing <laughs> else on the market. <laughs> well, Lincoln writes books coming out and soon in all English. So that's the first Machine and Krieger all English book that's going to be out pretty soon. So there's a little something. Yeah, that's exciting. It's on the uh, Mark 44. Yeah, it's already on pre-sale. And he's, I've talked to him a couple of days ago and he says it's doing pretty decently. He's really proud of it. 
Yeah, I think we can talk, JB, uh, maybe give a couple of sneak peeks. Uh, you can uh, keep it tuned here to the posse. We'll have uh, Lincoln ride on with TJ here pretty quick. TJ's a little under the weather, so we're not really sure when that'll happen, but it will be soon. And then uh, Grant mentioned our interview with Lila Mev a little bit earlier. Uh, we are going to be interviewing a very well-known Warhammer figure painter that I think you guys are all going to be excited about very, very soon. So stay tuned to the posse for that. That will be coming up uh, probably in the next episode, if not the episode after that. So send it home, Grant. Okay. Well, guys, I think that's about it for episode 46 and thanks for having me here guys i really do appreciate it uh please join the posse again in two weeks for episode 47 as the posse discuss all things modeling thanks again for joining us on episode 46 and remember to send your feedback to plastic posse podcast at gmail.com all right we time out we got one thing we're missing grant you know what it is bring us home oh yeah i forgot all about that yeehaw Yeehaw, buddy. Oh, man. <laughs> nice. Great Cut job, the man. Same cloth. Great job. Yeah, that was fun, guys. Thank you.